This is a recording of Strong Like Unto Moses, the case for ancient roots in the Book of Moses, based on Book of Mormon usage of related content, apparently from the brass plates, by Jeff Lindsay and Noel B. Reynolds. Published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship. Read by Jeff Lindsay. Over 30 years ago, Noel Reynolds compared matching non-biblical phrases in the Book of Moses and Book of Mormon. Based on this analysis, Reynolds proposed a possible connection between the Book of Moses and hypothetical material on the brass plates that may have influenced some Book of Mormon authors. Reynolds' work, The Brass Plates Version of Genesis, provided potentially plausible explanations for additional relationships between the Book of Moses and the Book of Mormon that arose in two later Jeff Lindsay studies, one on the Book of Mormon, uh, account of Lehi's trail, and another on the Book of Mormon's intriguing use of the ancient theme of rising from the dust. The additional findings and connections presented here strengthened the original case Reynolds made for the ancient roots of the Book of Moses, roots that could have extended to the brass plates and then on to the Book of Mormon. Critics might dismiss such, con such connections by asserting that Joseph merely drew from the Book of Mormon when drafting the Book of Moses. However, this view overlooks significant evidence indicating that the direction of dependence is the other way around. In light of the combined evidence now available, it is time to reconsider Reynolds' original proposal and recognize the possibility that the Book of Moses is more deeply rooted in, in antiquity than many have recognized in the past. Research in recent decades shows the Book of Moses to be more than Joseph Smith's alleged reworking of Genesis based on his personal views, his 19th century environment, or some prophetic imagination. These advances include glimpses into apparent ancient word plays that are still detectable behind the English translation, including a word play on the name of Moses that could not have been logically crafted based on the scholarship of Joseph's day. Continuing with bullet points, uh, surprising parallels to ancient records associated with Enoch, even including specific names such as Mahuja that Joseph either could not have had access to or in some cases most likely did not have access to, and evidence from, the, from tools of biblical and literary criticism that the text of Moses 1 has the characteristics and content of an ancient religious document, including artfully crafted chiasmus and other ancient Near Eastern literary t tools, such as a prophetic lawsuit. Nevertheless, many people, including some faithful members of the Church, tout a naturalistic view of the Book of Moses, without adequate attention to the possibility of other explanations for the text. We propose here that an additional witness for the divine origins of the Book of, of Moses may be found in an unexpected source, the Book of Mormon. Several years ago, while preparing a rebuttal to a Latter-day Saint scholar who claimed that the Book of Mormon account of Lehi's trail was implausible and, and even impossible, Lindsay noted a curious reference to Moses in 1 Nephi 4.2. The scripture had been used as evidence that the Book of Mormon is anachron anachronistic for speaking of Moses and the Exodus as if the Exodus account were known in Nephi's day. While there is excellent evidence for ancient roots of the Exodus account, a significant puzzle remained after dealing with the objection, what was Nephi referring to when he described Moses as strong? 
By the way, you may notice some unusual grammar in the Book of Mormon passages because um, unless otherwise indicated, all the Book of Mormon quotations are taken from uh, Royal Skousen's The Book of Mormon, the earliest text, which includes um, efforts to go back to the original dictation where possible of, of, the, of the Book of Mormon. Uh, here's 1 Nephi 4.2. Therefore, let us go up, let us be strong like unto Moses, for he truly spake under the waters of the Red Sea, and they divided hither and thither. And our fathers came through out of captivity on dry ground. And the armies of Pharaoh did follow, and were drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. Nephi seems to be alluding to a text or tradition about the strength of Moses that would be readily recognized by his brethren. However, nothing from the Old Testament directly supports describing Moses with the adjective strong. A search in the King James Version for the words strength or strong associated with Moses shows that the Pharaoh was strong. He would use a strong hand in Exodus 6.1. That Joshua was commissioned to be strong. Deuteronomy 31.7 and verse 23. Uh, also verse 23, Joshua 1 verses 6 through 7. And the sea was strong, Exodus 14.27. As well as the wind, Exodus 10.19. And that the Lord would lead Moses with a strong hand, Moses 13.9. Uh, compare Deuteronomy 7, 18 to 19. However, the KGV, the King James Version, says nothing about Moses himself being strong. In fact, Moses was getting on in years in the biblical account. By Exodus 17, the aging man needed the physical support of two other men to hold his staff up during a battle. See Exodus 17, verse 12. It is difficult to picture him as physically strong as the Exodus begins. So where did Nephi come up with the concept of Moses being strong? Researching this question led Lindsay to find Reynolds' 1990 article, The Brass Plates Version of Genesis, recently reprinted in the Interpreter Journal. That article outlined the results Reynolds found during a preliminary work on the intertextual relationship between the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses. Since Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon before the Book of Moses, if there is a relationship in the language or themes of the two books, it would be most natural to expect the Book of Mormon to have served as a source of language and themes that the Book of Mo Moses draws upon. However, Reynolds found surprising evidence that the opposite has occurred. The Book of Mormon in many cases appears to draw on language and themes in the Book of Moses, and sometimes there are indications that the flow is one way. In particular, as will be shown shortly, there are cases where the Book of Mormon appears to make allusions to concepts that are more fully developed in the Book of Moses, or where a passage in the Book of Mormon gains significant added meaning when the background provided by the Book of Moses is, uh, is present, indicating the Book of Moses is a possible source. There are no clear cases of the reverse where the Book of Moses seems to draw upon details in the Book of Mormon. In his article about the brass plates, Reynolds offers 33 distinct parallels of common language between the, book, between the Book of Moses and the Book of Mormon, suggesting a relationship between the two texts that is not found in comparing the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon. He therefore proposed that an ancient text with some similarities to our modern Book of Moses may have been on the brass plates, and that the brass plates version of Genesis, or something similar to the Book of Moses, may have extensively influenced the Book of Mormon. Reynolds' proposal appears to offer some promising ore to mine, but seems to have received inadequate attention. Applying Reynolds' work to the issue of the strength of Moses led to a surprising find, pres presented shortly as Parallel 34, 
and launch the present effort to more fully explore the possible relationship between the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses. Recently, and apparently independently, David Calibro, in a discussion of the Garden of Eden themes in Lehi's dream, observed that in 2 Nephi chapter 2, verses 17-18, to 18, Lehi may have been drawing on language from Moses 4, chapter 4, verse 4, where the works of Satan are described, consistent with Reynolds' earlier proposal. But in general, few seem to have recognized that a text related to the Book of Moses may have been on the brass plates, influencing numerous Book of Mormon passages. A note on the documents of the Book of Moses. The Book of Moses passages discussed herein come from the current Latter-day Saint printing of the Pearl of Great Price. The Book of Moses has a complex history with, a, with multiple documents involved, some of which had multiple corrections made at various times, as discussed by Kent P. Jackson. He notes that Joseph Smith's Genesis translation began on a manuscript known as Old Testament Manuscript 1, OT1, in which the Book of Moses is found on the first 21 pages written by four different scribes from Joseph's dictation. This manuscript was later copied by John Whitmer into a new document now known as Old Testament Manuscript 2, OT2, with many changes in wording, including many simple errors introduced by Whitmer. This document is available as Old Testament Revision 2 on the Joseph Smith Papers website the first 27 pages of which contain what is the Book of Moses. Joseph would later come back to the previously dictated text of the Book of Moses and make further changes and corrections, working with OT2 rather than OT1. It is likely that the changes to OT2 were made by the fall of 1833. What we have today, as the canonized Book of Moses, is largely based on the 1867 Committee Manuscript, CM, prepared by the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which employed both OT1 and OT2. However, its editor, Joseph Smith III, removed many of the corrections and additions made by Joseph Smith to OT1. Quote, the consequence was that his editing reverted many OT2 readings back to those found in OT1, thereby overruling much of his father's work on the text, uh, end quote, especially in chapters 1 and 7. Uh, and that is a that is a, a quote from um, oh, Kent Jackson's uh, History of the Book of Moses. This issue in general does not appear to significantly affect the examples discussed in this paper. Relevant verses were noteworthy different with with noteworthy differences to OT2 will be noted. A third manuscript, OT3, was a copy of OT1 made by John Whitmer that became his private possession, not a text used in any church publications. A Review of Key Findings from Reynolds' Original Work Reynolds' original paper explored relationships between key phrases and concepts occurring in the Book of Moses with both the Book of Mormon and the King James Bible. He found dramatic evidence that multiple elements in the Book of Moses showed up prominently in the Nephite record while being absent from the Bible. Further, he found evidence on multiple fronts indicating the direction of dependency was not from the Book of Mormon to the Book of Moses, but vice versa. Criteria for dependency that he used included the following. 1. The greater the number of significant terms repeated in parallel phrasings in two texts, the less likely they are to be independent. 2. The more precise the similarities between parallel phrasings in, the, in two texts, the less likely they are to be independent. 3. The more deliberately shaped the repetition in parallel phrasings in two texts is, the less likely they are to be uh, independent. 4. 
the more similar the context in which parallel phrasings occur, the less likely they are to be independent. 5. Author awareness of a brass plate's, brass plate's source reduces the likelihood of independence. 6. The more distinctive the terminology repeated in parallel phrasings in two texts, the less likely they are to be independent. 7. Presence of weak or strong versions of the parallel terminology in the New Testament, and even more so in the Old Testament, indicates the possibility that the Book of Moses and Book of Mormon passages are independent. Although clear Old Testament parallels do not prove independence, their, their existence is considered sufficient reason to drop the occurrence altogether as evidence of dependence. Reynolds gave each proposed parallel a score based on consideration of each of the seven criteria and selected the parallels with the highest scores to identify a group of parallels between the two texts that are highly persuasive on the basis of criteria ordinarily used by scholars evaluating possible sources of text. The first group of 11 Book of Mormon passages shown in Table 1 provided strong parallels with the Book of Moses materials, the Book of Moses itself and the related material in the Joseph Smith translation um, of the Bible. The first group is distinguished from a second group, shown in Table 2, that, that in that none of these parallels finds expression in the Bible, with the noted exception of Moses 6.52 being found in Acts 4.12. Table 1. Reynolds proposed parallels. Group 1. Concepts not directly found together in the King James Bible. I'm going to go through a couple of tables now to make it somewhat less tedious. I will summarize, uh, I'll, I'll mention the, the concepts for each of these uh, numbered parallels. Uh, I'm not going to mention all of the scriptures. Sometimes there's a long list of scriptures. I will, will refer you to tables one and tables two in the, uh, in the printed or published or online publication. But back to table one, uh, item number one, parallel number one, is the concept of transgression and fall together. It's, it's, it's um, noted by hyphens joining these two words. So it's transgression, hyphen, fall, semicolon, and then fall, hyphen, death, meaning that transgression and fall are grouped or, or paired as is fall and death. And that it refers to Moses 6.59, the, uh, and also in the, the parallel in the Book of Mormon is 2 Nephi 9.6. Concept number two, uh, the grouping of order, days, years, and eternity, shown with uh, hyphens in between those four words from Moses 6.67, shown also in Alma 13.7. Concept three, the Lord from all eternity to, uh, and that's typically all eternity, but Lord from all eternity to, found in Moses 7.29, also Mosiah 3.5 and Moroni 8.18. Concept four, God gave man agency. Those four words hyphen, with hyphens between them, as the way originally shown by Reynolds, and that's from Moses 7.32, also seen in 2 Nephi 2.16. Concept 5. The Lord's Spirit withdraws from man, Moses 1.15, and several Book of Mormon scriptures, including Mosiah 2.36. Concept 6. Children whole from the foundation, found in Moses 6.54, also Moroni 8, verses 8 and 12. Number 7 is the only name given, is the only name hyphen given hyphen salvation, that's Moses 6.52, also found in Messiah 3.17. Concept 8, dev, devil hyphen father hyphen of all lies, all in parentheses, Moses 4.4. 4. And parallels are, include 2 Nephi 2, uh, verse 18, 2 Nephi 9, verse 9, also Ether 8.25. 8, Concept 9, the devil hyphen, a devil lead captive his will. 
Moses 4.4, 4, and then also 2 Nephi 2.27, Alma 12.11, and 40.13. Concept 10. The concept is the devil uh, deceive, blind, lead. So devil hyphen deceive, hyphen blind, hyphen lead. Moses 4.4, 4, 3 Nephi 2.2. 2. Concept 11. Lies, lead, will, deceive, blind. So those words, lies, lead, will, deceive, blind, obviously referring to Satan. Again, it's Moses 4.4, 4, found in also 1 Nephi 16.38. Now we're into Table 2, which is Reynolds Proposed Parallels Group 2, concepts that also have King James Bible connections. So, number 12 has these pairings, Earth groans and rocks rend. Moses 7.56 and Book of Mormon, 1 Nephi 12.4 and uh, other verses, well, 12.4, 19.12 and 3 Nephi 10.9. Concept 13, the plan of salvation or redemption. And we have that in the Book of Moses, Moses 6.62 and multiple places in the Book of Mormon, such as 2 Nephi 11.5, Jacob 1.8 and so forth. Concept 14, eternal life. That's in Moses 1.39. And the Book of Mormon has it, 2 Nephi 2.27, and many other places. We'll mention this one a little further. Um, unclean, concept 15 is unclean, dwell, presence, God. So the unclean can't dwell in the presence of God type of concept. Moses 6.57, and 1 Nephi 10.21, and other verses. Call on all men to repent. This is concept 16, excuse me, to call, calling on all men to repent, Found in Moses 6.23, also 2 Nephi 2.12, Alma 12.33, and other verses. Concept 17, no wise inherit kingdom of God. That's from Moses 6.57, found in Mosiah 27.26, Alma 5.51, and other places. Concept 18, things temporal, spiritual. So the idea is there are things that are temporal or spiritual, or both temporal and spiritual, Moses 6.63, so those words, temple and spiritual, are being used. And we have multiple places in the Book of Mormon, such as 1 Nephi 15.32, uh, 22 2 Nephi 9.11-12, and so forth. Concept 19, people dwell in righteousness. Moses 7.16, 1 Nephi 22.26, excuse me. Concept 20, mine only begotten son, that phrase found in Moses 6.52, CF Moses 133. Uh, Book of Mormon, it's in Jacob 4, 5 and 11 and also Alma 12:33. Concept 21, works of darkness, found in Moses 5:55 and many places in the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 9:9, 9, 9, 2 Nephi 10:15 and so forth. Concept 22, secret combinations or combination, Moses 5:51. Found in many places in the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 26, 22, Alma 37, verses 30 to 31, Helaman 2.8, and so forth. Wars and bloodshed, that phrase, Moses 6.15, also in Jacob 7.24, Omni 1 and 3, uh, Omni 1, verses 3 and 24, Messiah 29.36, and many other places. Concept 24, the pairing, the grouping of terms shut out. From presence, God. Moses 6.49 as a proposed Book of Mormon, Moses source, and it's found in 2 Nephi 9.9 in the Book of Mormon. Concept 25, the pairing of the terms murder and get gain, found in Moses 5.31, also in Book of Mormon, Helaman 2.8, Helaman 7.21, and Ether 8.16. 8, 
Concept 26, seeking for power. That phrase, Moses 6.15, also Alma 46.4. Concept 27, the pairing of three terms, carnal, sensual, and devilish. All three, found in Moses 5.13, also in the Book of Mormon, Mosiah 16.3, Alma 41.13, and 42.10. Concept 28, pairing of the words hearts, or the grouping of the words hearts, wax, hard. Moses 6.27 and Alma 35.15. Concept 29, pairing of of three terms, lifted up, imagination, and his heart. Moses 8.22 and also in the Book of Mormon, Alma 1.6. Concept number 30 is the natural man, that phrase. Book of Moses, it's in Moses 1.14. Book of Mormon, it's in Mosiah 3.19 and Alma 26.21. Concept number 31 is the name Omner, O-M-N-E-R, found in Moses 7.9 and Mosiah 27.34. And concept 32 is the name Shum, S-H-U-M, found in Moses 7.5, also Alma 11.5, Alma, or concept 33, and thus it was or is, amen, pairing of terms, and thus it was or is, amen. Moses 5.59. Found in 1 Nephi 9.6 and several, and several other places, uh, including Helaman 12.26 and others. Okay, while these concepts are explained in detail in Reynolds' original publication, we'll note a few highlights here. Moses 4.4 appears to be an especially important connection, with multiple details in the description of Satan and his modus operandi um, appear to have influenced the Book of Mormon. One sentence of Moses seems to have spawned a whole family of formulaic references in the Book of Mormon. Quote, And he became Satan, yea, even the devil, the father of all lies, to deceive and to blind men, and to lead them captive at his will, even as many as would not hearken unto my voice. Moses 4.4. 4. Uh, this language is echoed precisely by both Lehi and Moroni, who, when mentioning the devil, add the stock qualification, which is the father of all lies. Compare uh, CF 2 Nephi 2.18 and Ether 8.25, while Jacob says the same thing in similar terms, 2 Nephi 9.9. Incidentally, the descriptive term devil, which is used frequently to refer to Satan in, in both Moses and the Book of Mormon, does not occur at all in the Old Testament. New Testament occurrences do not reflect this context. The Book of Mormon sometimes separates and sometimes combines the elements of this description of the devil from Moses and portrays Satan as one deliberately um, seeking to deceive the hearts of the people and to blind their eyes, that he might lead them away. 3 Nephi 2.2 Particularly striking is the repeated statement that the devil will lead those who do not hearken to the Lord's voice captive at his will. Moses 4.4 In Alma, we find that those who harden their hearts will receive the lesser portion of the word until they know nothing concerning his mysteries, and then they are taken captive by the devil and led down by his will to destruction. That's Alma 12.11. Much later, Alma invokes the same phrasing to warn his son Corianton of the plight of the wicked, who, quote, because of their own iniquity, end quote, are, quote, led captive by the will of the devil, end quote, from Alma 40.13. In the passage discussed above, Lehi taught his son... Jacob, that men are, quote, free to choose liberty and eternal life, dot, 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 or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil, for he seeketh that all men might be miserable, end quote, 2 Nephi 2.27. A remarkable passage in the first part of the Book of Mormon pulls all these Book of Moses themes about Satan together to describe someone else. 
The implication is unmistakable when Laman characterizes his brother, his brother Nephi as one who lies and who deceives our eyes, thinking to, thinking to lead us away for the purpose of making himself, quote, a king and a ruler over us, that he may do with us according to his will and pleasure, end quote, 1 Nephi 16.38. Laman insinuates that Nephi, who chastises his wayward brothers, is himself like the devil, and resistance against him is not only righteous, but required. This account has the, has the added complexity that it is a speech of Laman, who is quoted here in a record written by the very brother he attacks. If we accept the possibility that this text is dependent on a passage from an ancient source related to the book of Moses, we then recognize a major new dimension of meaning, not only in Laman's speech, but in Nephi's decision to preserve the speech, thus showing his descendants and any other readers familiar with the Moses text the full nature of the confrontation between the brothers, as well as the injustice of the attacks he suffered. The full irony is revealed when, re when we reflect on the, f on the facts reported in Nephi's record and realize that Laman's false accusation against Nephi is an accurate self-description. Okay, those past few verses I've been reading the uh, quote quotation from Noel Reynolds' original paper. Uh, so, ending that quote, Layman's complaint about Nephi becomes meaningful and ironic when one realizes that he may be referring to a specific scriptural depiction of Satan that is not found in the Old Testament, but is in the book of Moses, as if that description were in the brass plates. In this instance, the relationship between the book of Mormon and the book of Moses shows a one-way nature. The speech from Layman illustrates some of the reasons Reynolds gives for the one-way relationship between the two books. Um, quoting Reynolds here, It is clearly Moses that provides the unity and coherence to a host of scattered Book of Mormon references. It is, uh, it is the story of creation and subsequent, subsequent events that supplies meaning to the Book of Mormon language concerning 1. The transgression fall and death, two, explaining the origins of human agency, three, describing the character and modus operandi of Satan, four, explaining the origins and character of secret combinations and the works of darkness. To mention only a few of the most obvious examples, the Book of Mormon is the derivative document. It shows a number of different authors borrowing from a common source as suited, as suited their particular needs. Lehi, Nephi, Benjamin, and Alma, Alma all used it frequently depending on its context, to give added meaning to their own writings. Perhaps most significantly, we have at hand a control document against which to check this hypothesis. A few years after receiving Moses, Joseph, the, uh, after, after receiving Moses, Joseph Smith translated an Abrahamic text. In spite of the fact that this new document contained versions of some of the same chapters of Genesis that are paralleled in the book of Moses, and in spite of the fact that the Book of Mormon has a large number of direct references to the Book of Abraham, uh, to, Ab to uh, excuse me, to Abraham the person, detailed textual comparison demonstrates that this second document does not feature any of the phrases and concepts that have been reported above, linking Moses to the Book of Mormon textual tradition. Nor does the distinctive non-Old Testament phraseology of the Book of Abraham show up in the Book of Mormon. The logic that would lead skeptics to conclude that these common concepts and expressions provide evidence that Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses runs aground on Abraham, as the skeptical hypothesis would seem to require a similar pattern there. But such a pattern is not even faintly detectable. It is also impressive that most of the influence from the Book of Mo Moses in the Book of Mormon 
shows up early in the small plates and the writings of the first generation of Book of Mormon prophets. Significantly, those who had who had custody and long-term first-hand access to the brass plates. Many of the later passages that, that use Book of Moses terminology and concepts tend to repeat earlier Nephite adaptations of the original materials. While Table 2 has connections to the KGV that sometimes could account for the intertextuality, in many cases what the KGV offers is less complete than the Book of Moses. For example, Moses 6.49 tells us that Satan came among the children of men, tempting them to worship him, and thus men became carnal, sensual, and devilish, uh, and are shut out from the presence of God. Moses 5.13 has Satan deceiving the children of men, with the result that, quote, men began from that time forth to be carnal, sensual, and devilish. Those three adjectives in the same order are found in Mosiah 16.3 and Alma 42.10. Uh, C.F. Alma 41.13 with carnal and devilish. The Book of Mormon's use of that phrase points to the same context as in the Book of Moses. The closest language in the King James Bible has earthly, sensual, devilish in James 3.15. The listing for things-temporal-spiritual refers to Moses 6.63, where the Lord draws a distinction between things which are, temp- quote, things which are temporal and things which are spiritual, end quote. Nephi, or Nephi 1, first, uh, makes the same distinction in 1 Nephi 15.32 and 22.3, using the phrase, quote, things both temporal and spiritual. King Benjamin later says that those who keep the commandments are blessed, or, quote, are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual, uh, end quote. Mosiah 2.41. Alma, uh, Alma the second, Alma 2, encouraged people to pray for that which they needed, quote, things uh, both temporal and uh, things both spiritual and temporal, and quote Alma 7:23. He also distinguished between spiritual and temporal death, Alma see Alma 12:16, and between te- the temporal and spiritual things the Lord provides, see Alma 37:43. The two classes of things and the two classes of death are both combined by Samuel the Lamanite in Helaman 14:16, which also invokes the phrase quote cut off from the presence of the Lord, end quote similar to the phrase found in Moses 6.49. The concept of spiritual things occurs in the New Testament, but it is not paired with references to temporal things. Um, see, uh, see, for example, 1 Corinthians 2.10-14. In reviewing the parallels previously listed and others to be discussed, we found that an interesting feature is the tendency for a few Book of Moses passages to be used in multiple ways in the Book of Mormon and for some Book of Mormon passages to cite multiple phrases from the Book of Moses. We previously mentioned that multiple phrases of Mo- the, the multiple phrases of Moses 4.4. As discussed above, Moses 6.49 not only has carnal, sensual, and devilish, but also the phrase shut out from the presence of God, which is found in 2 Nephi 9.9, uh, literally sh- directly shut out from the presence of our God, and in the related context of becoming subject to Satan. 2 Nephi 9.9 also refers to secret combinations and secret works of darkness related to other Book of Moses phrases, as well as the Book of Moses teaching about the misery of Satan to be discussed herein. Reynolds discusses many more parallels. Significantly, based on further exploration, it appears that his case may be stronger than initially realized. Additional potential relationships between the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses. In coping with the earlier described question about the strength of Moses in 1 Nephi 4.2, 
and in light of Reynolds' original study with its 33 parallels, we question whether something in the book of Moses could have served as a source for Nephi's illusion when he told his brothers, let us be strong like unto Moses. This led us to the results detailed shortly, but it also led to an additional question, might there be more? Through collaboration that began after that tentative question, we now offer an update that may help encourage others to reconsider how they approach the book of Moses. The resulting possible relationship-defining parallels are detailed in this paper. Building on the 33 parallels originally identified by Reynolds, we start numbering the new parallels with 34 for the strength of Moses. Table 3 lists the additional concepts found in the Book of Mormon that show relationships with the Book of Moses that either are not found in the King James Bible or may have or may be significantly significantly stronger than possible KGV relationships. Table 3. Additional proposed parallels for the Book of Moses and the Book of Mormon. And now we have a table. Um, I'll do the same thing as before. I'll give you the, the number of the parallel, the concept, then the citations in the Book of Moses, and at least one of the citations in the Book of Mormon when there are sometimes a long string. Uh, concept number 34, the strength of Moses. Book of Moses, as Moses uh, 1, uh, verses 20 to 21 and 25. Book of Mormon, 1 Nephi 4.2. Concept 35, chains of darkness, chains of hell, chains of the devil. Moses 7.26 and 57. Uh, Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 1.13 uh, and verse 23 also. And 2 Nephi 9.45 and a number, uh, quite a few more. Concept number 36, Veil of Darkness, Moses 7.26 and 61, um, Book of Mormon, Alma 19.6, also compare Ether 4.15. Concept 37, Song of Redeeming Love slash Everlasting Joy, contrasted with Chains of Darkness slash Hell. Book of Moses, uh, seven, chapter 7, verses 53 to 57, uh, Book of Mormon, Alma 5.7 and 9, uh, also verse 26 in that chapter, uh, Alma 26, 13 to 15, and Alma 36, 18 and 22. Concept number 38, the use of satanic oaths and covenants in forming secret combinations. Moses 5, 29, um, verse, also verses 49 to 52, and then Moses 6, 28 to 29. Uh, Book of Mormon has Alma 37, uh, verses 27 and 29, Helaman 6, verses 21, 25, and 26, and 4th Nephi 1.42, also Ether 8.15 to 16 and 20. Concept 39, the great antiquity of secret combinations and satanic covenants. Moses 5.28 to 31 and verse 49, also Moses 6.15. In the Book of Mormon, we have 2nd Nephi 26.22, Helaman 6.27, and several from, from the Book of Ether. Uh, concept 40, Cain's involvement in a secret combination to keep Abel's murder secret. Uh, taught in Moses 5.29, also Helaman 6.27. Concept 41, the persistence of Satan's secret combination, not only with Cain, uh, or secret combinations, not only with Cain, but with other followers, with mechanisms for enforcement. Uh, Moses 5.29, verses 49 to 52 and 55, also Moses 6.15. Book of Mormon has Alma, uh, he has Helaman 6:27 and Ether 8 verses 20 to 26. Um, a note on the enforcement system: see Helaman 6:24. Concept 42: Knowing 
uh, slash distinguishing brothers in secret satanic covenants slash combinations, Moses 5.51 and Helaman 6.22. Concept 43, shaking, trembling of heavens, earth, Satan, and the wicked, slash shaking off Satan's chains, bands, and sin. So it's the combination of this shaking contrasted or, or linked with the shaking off of chains. Um, or the shaking of chains. Moses 1, 21, and Moses 6, 47 to 49, also 7, 41, and 61. Then we have it in 2 Nephi uh, 1, verses 13 to 23, uh, 2 Nephi 9, uh, verses 44 to 45, and 28, 18 to 19. Concept 44, misery, either for Satan or his followers. Moses 7, verses 37 and 41, and many places in the Book of Mormon, starting with 2 Nephi 2, verses 5 and 11 and 13, also 18, 23, 27, and then 2 Nephi 9, 9, um, and it goes on, many more. Uh, 45, misery and woe, Moses 6, 48, also see 2 Nephi 1, 13, Alma 9, 11, and a couple of verses in Helaman. Concept 46, the infinite nature of God's love and the atonement. Uh, in parentheses, Enoch's heart swelled wide as eternity and his bowels yearned in tasting the grief of human wickedness slash Christ bowels of mercy and infinite atonement. End of parenthesis. Um, or parentheses. In Mo- Book of Moses, that's in Moses 7, 28 to 41. See especially verse 41. In the Book of Mormon, we have bowels of mercy in Mosiah 15, 9, Alma 26, 37, and Alma 34, 15. The infinite atonement is in 2 Nephi 9, 7, and Alma 34, verses 10 and 14. Concept 47, rage and Satan's dominion over the hearts of men. Moses 6, 15. Many verses in the Book of Mormon, starting with 1 Nephi 12, 17, uh, 1 Nephi 13, 27, and 29, uh, 1 Nephi 14, 7, etc., Concept 48, administering death, Moses 6.15, Book of Mormon, it's Alma 57.19, also see Alma 47.18, and Alma 55, verses 30 and 32. Concept 49, the word returning void in the context of the Garden of Eden and the Fall, found in Moses 4.30, also Alma 12.22-23, and verse 26, Alma 42, verses 2-5. Concept 50, Esteeming scripture as a thing of not. Moses 1, 40-41. Found in Book of Mormon, 1 Nephi 19, verses 6-9. 2 Nephi 33, verses 2-3. Concept 51. Raising up a prophet to restore ancient scripture. Moses 1, 41. Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 3, verses 6-7 and 12 and 24. <clears throat> Concept 52. The workmanship of God's hands. Moses 1, verse 4, Moses 7, verse 32, 36, and 37, also verse 40 of all of chapter 7. And in the Book of Mormon, we have Jacob 4, 9. Concept 53, men ordained after the order, uh, after the order of the Son of God or of God. And it's in Moses 8, 19. Um, compare Moses 6, 67 to 68. Uh, Book of Mormon, multiple places, but 2 Nephi 6.2, Alma 13, verses 1 to 2, and then a number of places that you should should compare are listed. Alma 54, nature, or the natural, um, either man, eyes, or frame, versus the spiritual, slash the spirit, or spirits, 
So it's this contrasting of natural and spiritual. Moses 1, verses 10 and 11, also see verse 14. Moses 3, 5, Moses chapter 3, verses 5, 7, 9, also chapter 6, verse 36. Then in the Book of Mormon, we have Mosiah 3.19, Alma 19.6, and other verses in Alma. Concept 55, the roles of a seer, Moses 6.35 to 36. Also Moses 6 and 7 generally. Uh, in the Book of Mormon, Mosiah 8, verses 13 to 17, Mosiah 28, verses 10 to 16, and Alma 37, verses 22 to 26. Uh, concept 56, perished in their sins, Moses 7.1. In the Book of Mormon, it's Mosiah 15:26, but also see uh, chapter 13, verse 28. Concept 57, sins slash cursing answered upon the heads of parents slash children. Moses 6:54 and 7:37, found in 2 Nephi 4:6, Jacob 1:19 and 3:10, and several other places. Or also Mosiah 29:30 to 31. Uh, list a few other places to compare also. Concept 58, the glory of God and its relationship to eternal life. Moses 139 and 659 and 61. Uh, several places, see 2 Nephi 125, Jacob 4.4 and also verse 11, uh, etc. Concept 59, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. All three being present, Moses 122 and Mosiah 1612 and Alma 4013. Concept 60, Satan laughs and his angels rejoice. Moses 7.26, also see Third Nephi in the Book of Mormon, Third Nephi 9, verse 2. Concept 61, um, the God slash Lord who weeps or grieves for those who are lost. Um, Moses 7.28, verses 28 to 40. Found in the Book of Mormon, Jacob 5, uh, verses 7, 11, 13, and 32. Also, all these are all these are Jacob five rather. So in Jacob five verses um, seven, eleven, thirteen, thirty-two, forty-six, forty-seven, fifty-one, and sixty-six. Concept sixty-two: All things bear witness of the Creator. Moses six sixty-three, Book of Mormon, Second Nephi eleven four, Alma thirty verses forty-one and forty-four, and Helaman eight twenty-three to twenty-four. Concept 63, Power, Wisdom, Mercy, and Justice. Book of Moses, Moses 6.61-62. In the Book of Mormon, we have 2 Nephi 9.12 and 11, verse 5, Mosiah 5.15 and Jacob 4.10. Concept 64, Commanding the Earth and the Power of the Word. Moses 7.13. Book of Mormon, multiple places, 1 Nephi 17.29, 2 Nephi 1.26, Jacob 4, verses 6 and 9, and several others. Concept 65, Spreading Abominations and Works of Darkness. Moses 5.52, Book of Mormon, it's Helaman 6.28, but, but compare Ether 8, verses 18 to 22. And Concept 66, Powers of Heaven and Heavenly Ascent and Descent. See uh, from Moses 7.27, in the Book of Mormon, 3 Nephi 20, verses 22, 3 Nephi 21, verses 23 to 25, and also chapter 28, verses 7 to 8. Concept 67, salvation or damnation by, quote, a firm decree, unquote. Moses 5.15, but compare Moses 6.29 to 30. In the Book of Mormon, Alma 9.24 and 29.4. Concept 68, angels bearing testimony, Moses 7.27, Book of Mormon, Moroni 7.31. 
Concept 69, the residue of men slash the people plus angels bearing testimony. Uh, Moses 7, 27 to 28. Also compare uh, verses 20 and 22 in Moses 7. And in the Book of Mormon, Moroni 7, 31 to 32. Concept 70, prepared from the foundation of the world. Moses 5, 57. Book of Mormon, we have 1 Nephi 10, 18, Mosiah 4, 67, and uh, multiple other verses. Concept 71, gathered from the four quarters of the earth. Moses 7, 62. In the Book of Mormon, 1 Nephi 19, 16, and uh, chapter 22, 25, and other places. Uh, concept 72, counsel plus ye yourselves. Moses 6.43 and Jacob 4.10 in the Book of Mormon. Concept 73, fearful looking for the fiery indig- indignation of the wrath of God upon them. Moses 7.1, but compare uh, also verse 34 in that chapter. And the Book of Mormon, Alma 40.14. Concept 74, numerous upon the face of the land. Moses 6.15, in the Book of Mormon, it's Jerem 1.6, Mosiah 27.6, and, and several and other places. Concept 75, uh, record uh, plus baptism by fire and the Holy Ghost. Moses 6.66, 3 Nephi 11.35, and 19.14. Concept 76, caught up or away to an exceedingly high mountain. Moses 1.1, 1, 1, and 1 Nephi 11.1. 1. Concept 77, it's a compound parallel. We call this compound parallel 1. Part A is the captivity of Satan. Part B is the concept of eternal life. Part C is the combination of temporal and spiritual. Uh, Part D is hardness of hearts. And part E is blindness. Um, For A, the cat, we well, and then compare these, uh, the list in order, these would be A, B, C, D, E in the the book of Moses, be Moses 4, 4, uh, 139, 663, 615 and 27, and then for E, Moses 4, 4 and 627. Compare all those to 1 Nephi 14, 7, that brings them all together. Compound parallel, okay, number 78 is compound parallel 2. This has elements A, devil is the father of lies, B, shut out from the presence of God, C, secret combinations, D, works of darkness, and E, misery for the wicked. The, book of Mo- the parts from the book of Moses come from Moses 4.4, 4, Moses 5, uh, verses 4 and 41, as well as 6.49. Um, for element C, we have Moses 5.51. Element D, we have Moses 5.51 and 55. And finally, for element E, Moses 7.37 and verse 41. Uh, all those are brought together in 2 Nephi 9.9. Concept 79, compound parallel 3. A is Satan's, element A is Satan's, Satan's fall and his angels. B is the plan of salvation slash, slash merciful plan of God. Element C is temporal versus spiritual. And element D, clothed with glory slash purity slash robe of righteousness. We find A in Moses 4, 3 to 4, and, so, and Moses 7, 26. B is in Moses 6, 62. C in 6, 63. And D in Moses 7, 3. Um, now in the Book of Mormon, we have 2 Nephi 9, verses 6 to 14. Um, A is in verses 8 to 9. B is in verses 6 and 13. Also compare verse 28. And C is in verses 10 to 12. D is in verse 14. Number 80, compound parallel 4. Part A, Satan will rage in the hearts of men. B. Chains of hell slash destruction, and C. Satan leading men into captivity. 
found in or part A is found in Moses 6:15, B in Moses 7:26 and 57, C in Moses 4:4. 4, 4. These are brought together in 2 Nephi 28 verses 18 through 23. Number 81, compound parallel 5. A, the workmanship of God's hands and B, counsel. A plus B are found in Moses 1:4 and 7 verses 32 to 40. Uh, these are brought together in Jacob 4, 9 to 10. Compound 82, or parallel 82, is compound parallel 6. Uh, it has part A, creation of all things, and B, wisdom, power, justice, and mercy, found in Moses 6, 61, and also Moses 5, 15, compare Mosiah 4, 9. Uh, I meant Mosiah 5.15 and Mosiah 4.9. Number 83, compound parallel 7. A, after the order of the sun. B, without beginning of days or ends of years. C, is the only begotten of the Father. D, full of grace and truth. And E, thus it is. Amen. A plus B are found in Moses 6.67. C and D found in Moses 5.6. Also look at Moses 1. Verses six, verses six and thirty-two, five, verse six, and six, uh, chapter six, verse fifty-two. Uh, also Moses seven, eleven, and part E, Moses five, fifty-nine, brought together in Alma thirteen, nine. Com- uh, parallel eighty-four is new co- is compound parallel eight. Part A is the New Jerusalem. B gathered from four quarters of the earth. C cleansed through blood of the lamb, and D fulfilled covenants. A and B are found in Moses 7:62, C in chapter 6 verse 59, D in Moses 8:2. These are brought together in Ether 13:10 to 11. Uh, number 85 is compound parallel 9. Part A, call men to repentance, B fulfill covenants, C angels declare, D bear testimony. A is Moses 6:23, Moses 6:23, B Moses 8:2, C Moses 5:58. D, Moses 7.27 and 62, brought together in Moroni 7.31. Compound or parallel 86 is compound parallel 10, Enoch and Samuel the Lamanite. This is from chapter 6 of the book of Moses and it's found in Helaman chapters 13 through 16, discussed later. Then there are parallels 87 through 97. These are weaker parallels to consider. And they're discussed in some in a little more detail below. In examining proposed parallels, we wish to exclude those that can be readily derived from the King James Bible to which Smith had access. When, these, when there are closely related phrases in the Bible, we will note them and discuss their relevance. A possible parallel will be less significant if the wording can be easily accounted as a common term in the Bible or possibly drawn from well-known concepts, but possibly more significant if it is unusual. In exploring intertextuality between two related texts, there is certainly the possibility that some parallels may simply reflect Joseph's preference for wording in describing common themes and concepts. Indeed, it is possible that some of the parallels discussed in this paper, especially when dealing with relatively common concepts, may be a reflection of Joseph's choice in wording, particularly if the method of receiving revelation about a text involved involved using his own words to express revealed impressions or ideas, as has often been proposed. 
However, there is increasing evidence that at least for the Book of Mormon, Smith's translation method involved a good deal of tight control in which specific wording may have been provided through revelation, as opposed to general ideas being given that Joseph then expressed with his own words. In light of that evidence, we will favor the hypothesis that the wording of the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses may frequently transcend Joseph's vernacular. It is possible, of course, that tight control occurred for the dictation of the Book of Mormon, but not for the Book of Moses, allowing Joseph to use his own words and perhaps to draw on language he had picked up from the Book of Mormon translation. For relatively general concepts, that possibility may be considered, but it may not account for the many unique or unusual elements considered in this paper. Parallel 34. The Strength of Moses in exploring possible origins for the strength of Moses alluded to in 1 Nephi 4.2, Moses 1.20-21 was found to contain two references to Moses receiving strength from the Lord. Then comes a surprise a few verses later. And calling upon the name of God, he beheld his glory again, for it was upon him, and he heard a voice saying, Blessed art thou, Moses, for I, the Almighty, have chosen thee, and thou shalt be made stronger than many waters, for they shall obey thy command as if thou wert God. It's Moses 1.25. Moses, who had received strength from the Lord, would later be made even stronger than the many waters that he would cross. If Nephi had access to a text with a similar account about Moses, his words in 1 Nephi 4.2 could be understood as an allusion to such an account. In a recent paper, Mark Johnson observed that the three references in Moses 1 to strength involving Moses describe a three-tiered structure for personal strength and spirituality, in which strength is described in patterns reminiscent of sacred geography, each tier bringing Moses closer to God. The first instance depicts Moses having, quote, natural strength like unto man, end quote, which was inadequate to cope with Satan's fury. In fear, Moses called upon God for added strength, allowing him to gain the victory over Satan. Next, Moses is promised additional strength that would be greater than many waters. Quote, this would endow Moses with powers to, to be in the similitude of Yahweh, to divide the waters from the waters, similar to Genesis 1.6, at the shores of the Red Sea. Exodus 14.21, end quote. Johnson sees the treatment of the strength of Moses as one of, the, of many evidences of ancient perspectives woven into the text of Moses 1. In light of Johnson's analysis, if something like Moses 1 were on the brass plates as a prologue to Genesis, to Nephite students of the brass plates, the reference to the strength of Moses might be seen as more than just a random tidbit. tidbit. It would rather be seen as part of a carefully developed literary tool related to important themes such as the commissioning of, of prophets and becoming more like God through serving him. If so, the concept of the strength of Moses may easily have been prominent enough to require no explanation to his brothers when Nephi alluded to it. In short, if something like the book of Moses were on the brass plates, it could provide a source for Nephi's allusion, an allusion his brothers readily understood. That proposed source may help explain the concept of the strength of Moses, providing the detailed background story to which the Book of Mormon merely alludes. The direction of transmission most logically would be from that hypothetical source to the Book of Mormon. Parallel 35. Satan's Chains of Darkness In Moses 7.26, Enoch sees Satan with a great chain. Quote, and he beheld Satan, and he had a great chain in his hand, and it veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And he looked up and laughed, and his angels rejoiced. End quote. A little later in Moses 7.57, we read of spirits in prison held captive in, quote, chains of darkness, end quote, until the judgment day. 
This follows the heavens being veiled in verse 56. Chains of darkness and Satan and Satan veiling the earth, perhaps with the chain of darkness, are striking images in Moses 7. In light of Reynolds' original work, one might hope to find the imagery of chains of darkness and Satan's veiling of the earth in darkness to be present in the Book of Mormon. Exploring that possibility initially led to, dis to disappointment, as the term chains of darkness is not found in the Book of Mormon. However, some related references may be significant. Revelation 21 mentions a great chain used by the angel who cast Satan into the bottomless pit, and, quote, chains of darkness, end quote, are mentioned in 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 1.6. These references, however, are possibly connected back to the book of Enoch, which is cited in Jude 1.14. First Enoch, published in 1821 from a text in the Ge'etz language and often called Ethiopic, mentions great iron chains and is supposed to be tied to the source of the passages from 2 Peter and Jude especially since Jude explicitly refers to an ancient book of Enoch. Peter and Jude write of angels who sinned and are held in chains of darkness until the judgment day, aligning well with the discussion of Satan's rebellion in heaven in the book of Moses and also with Moses 7.57 and the spirits in prison in chains of darkness until the judgment of the great day. In the KGV Old Testament, the connection between chains and darkness is not present. However, Psalms 1.7.10 could be relevant, for it speaks of rebellious souls who sit, who quote, sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, end quote. Iron may refer to chains, and some other translations use chains, such as the New International Version, NIV. Uh, some sat in, and this is quoting again Psalms 107, verses 9 to 10, some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the, the plans of the Most High. Quote. While the Book of Mormon phrase, chains of darkness, does not occur in any single verse of the Book of Mormon, Lehi's speech to his sons in 2 Nephi 1 may be relevant. In verse 23, Lehi says, quote, Awake, my sons, put on the armor of righteousness, shake off the chains with which ye are bound, and come forth out of obscurity and arise from the dust, end quote. Here chains are associated with obscurity, a word that can mean darkness. The entry for obscurity in the 1828 Dictionary of Noah Webster, for, for example, gives the first definition for obscurity as darkness, want of light. 2 Nephi 1.23 ends an apparent chiasm as outlined in Donald W. Perry's valuable work, Poetic Parallelisms in the Book of Mormon. Perry identifies a seven-step chiasm covering verses 13 to 23, this is in 2 Nephi 1, with the outer uh, verses strongly connected by the themes of arising and shaking off chains. Significantly, the obscurity or darkness linked to dust and chains in verse 23 is also parallel to a deep sleep in verse 13. In verse 13, Lehi urges his sons to awake, awake from a deep sleep, yea, even from the sleep of hell, and shake off the awful chains by which ye are bound. Sleep and hell here are related to darkness and juxtaposed with chains. 
Other sections of the Book of Mormon display related concepts. Further, based on Perry's, Perry's identification of poetic structures in the Book of Mormon, it appears that a majority of the references to chains occur in the form of chiasmus, with examples in 2 Nephi 1, verses 13 to 23, 2 Nephi 9, uh, 44 to 46, 2 Nephi 28, 16 to 20, Alma 5, 7 to 9, and Alma 36, see verse 18. Metal chains, while apparently not part of life in the New World for Book of Mormon peoples, long remained a part of Book of Mormon poetry. Alma 5, verses 7 to 9, for example, is shown by Perry to be a five-step chiasm. The following passage is shown using Perry's formatting, but with the punctuation and wording from Skousen. Uh, Starting with verse 7, um, let's see. Behold, he changed their hearts. He awakened them out of a deep sleep, and they awoke unto God. Now here is section A, uh, part A of the chiasm. Behold, they were in the midst of darkness. Nevertheless, now part B, their souls were illuminated by the light of the everlasting word. Now part C, yea, they were encircled about, part D, by the bands of death and the chains of hell, and an everlasting destruction did await them. Part E, now I ask of you, my brethren, were they destroyed? Now we reflect, or we are at the 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 center of the chiasm, and now we reflect to part E prime. Behold, I say unto you, nay, they were not. D prime, and again I ask, was the bands of death broken and the chains of hell? C prime, which encircled them about, were they loosed? I say unto you, B prime, yea, they were loosed, and their souls did expand, and they did sing redeeming love. A prime, and I say unto you, they are saved. The chiasm begins with the phrase, they were in the midst of darkness in line A, and then has both the bands of death and chains of hell phrases in lines D and D prime. It is through loosing them that that the contrast to being in darkness is obtained, namely being saved in line A. Immediately before the reference to darkness, Alma 2 discusses the Nephites in the city of Nephi and says that they were in a deep sleep. So both deep sleep and darkness are associated with the chains of hell, adding to the proposed parallel with chains of darkness as symbols of Satan's captivity. In considering the possible relationship between the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses and disregarding the chronology of the two, that is, being open to the possibility of a related ancient text on the brass plates predating the Book of Mormon, the vivid imagery of Satan with his terrible chains of darkness, if also present on the brass plates, could be a source for the poetical uses of chains in the Book of Mormon, where the concept of Satan's chains of darkness is more subtly present. This seems to be the case with many of the further examples we will consider. Parallel 36, The Veil of Darkness. As noted previously, Moses 7.26 tells us that Satan's great chain veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And Moses 7.61 speaks of the veil of darkness that will cover the earth. A related concept occurs in Isaiah 25.7, which refers to the veil that is spread over all nations. Like the, uh, like the, quote, covering cast over all people, end quote, in that verse, this veil is a hindrance to the spiritual progress of humanity and will be destroyed by the Lord in the end. The veil may implicitly be a veil of darkness or bring darkness. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 13 to 36, refers to the veil of Moses put over his face and how the minds of the children of Israel were blinded. The verses say that we experience this same veil today when we read Moses, but we remove this veil when we turn to the Lord. Spiritual darkness can be said to be the implicit effect of that metaphorical veil. 
The concept of veiling with darkness or a dark veil is more explicit in Alma 19.6, where we read of the dark veil of unbelief being cast away from King Lamoni's mind. Also related is Ether 4.13-15, where Moroni tells the house of Israel that when they rend, quote, that veil of unbelief, and, or that veil of unbelief which doth cause you to remain in your awful state of wickedness and, and hardness of heart and blindness of mind, end quote, then they will know that the Father has remembered the covenant he made with their fathers, Ether 4.15. Here the veil directly causes blindness of mind. Parallel 37, the song of redeeming love contrasted with the chains of hell. In line B prime of the previous chiasm of Alma 5, 7-9, when the chains of hell are loosed, quote, their souls did expand and they did sing redeeming love, end quote. The contrast between the chains of hell or darkness and songs of redeeming love or joy is found in Moses 7, 53-57. In verse 53, the Lord tells Enoch that, quote, whoso cometh in at the gate and climbeth up by me, uh, this is following the arise slash ascend theme from the uh, arise from the dust work, shall come forth with songs of everlasting joy, end quote. Enoch then asks when the Son of Man will come, and in vision he has shown the crucifixion of Christ. See verses 54 to 55. The heavens were veiled, verse 56. The earth groaned and the rocks were rent. Then follows verse 57, which mentions spirits in prison, quote, reserved in chains of darkness until the judgment, end quote, until the judgment day. Shortly afterward, verse 61 describes the veil of darkness that will cover the earth. The point of this proposed parallel is that both the Book of Moses and the Book of Mormon share the contrast between the chains of hell and singing by those who are redeemed by Christ. Singing is a common occurrence in the Bible, of course, but apparently not with this particular contrast. In Isaiah 51, following the following the call for the Lord's arm to awake, awake, put on strength, verse 9, the redeemed of the Lord, quote, come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head, verse 11, end quote. Uh, one may object to differences in wording between, quote, sing redeeming love, end quote, in the Book of Mormon, and songs of everlasting joy in the Book of Moses. Are they really related? In response, note that both expressions refer to singing as a result of the redemptive work of the Savior, in contrast to Satan's captivity with the chains of hell. As for song versus sing, one is, one is of course a noun while the other is a verb, but as in many la- languages, the words for sing and song are, cro- are closely related in, in Hebrew. Then there's a parenthetical comment, uh, there's a Hebrew word, shir is the root for the verb Strong's H7891 and for the noun Strong's H7892, typically used for sing and song, respectively, in the KGV. Parallels 38 to 42, multiple connections on the existence, nature, and history of satanic oaths and covenants. The existence of secret satanic covenants and their ancient history, including the involvement of Cain in one such murderous secret combination, is given in detail in Moses 5, 28 to 32, and also verses 49 to 56, and also in Moses 6, 15. Some of these concepts and details appear to be familiar to Book of Mormon writers, who not only use similar language such as works of darkness and secret combinations, as Reynolds has noted, see parallels 21 and 22 in Table 2, but also allude to their ancient history several times. In so doing, they share several details found in the Book of Moses' account. 
Helaman 6, 21-31, for example, describes the operations of the secret combinations in Nephite society. Among the highlights, this passage, uh, and there's several bullet points here, describes the existence and nature of the secret oaths and covenants, verses 25-26, to compare verse 21, of the secret combination known as the Gadianton robbers. Uh, explains that their covenants and oaths were used to protect members in their murders and theft, allowing members to distinguish brothers within their murderous band. See verses 21 to 22. States that secret signs and words were used by those who had taken such covenants. See verse 22. Uh, reveals the existence of their own justice system based on on laws of wickedness. Uh, quote, laws of their wickedness, end, end quote, or unquote, to punish those who improperly revealed their secrets and crimes, verse 24. Um, cont- indicates that these secret oaths and covenants were, quote, put into the heart of Gadianton, end quote, by Satan, verse 26. Relates that it was Satan who plotted with Cain to encourage him to murder Abel, verse 27. Observes that Satan continues carrying on such works of darkness and secret murder, verses 29 to 30, and hands down the plots, oaths, covenants, and, quote, plans of awful wickedness, end quote, from from generation to generation, as he gets, quote, hold upon the hearts of the children of men, unquote, verse 30. This passage, that's the end of the bullet points, this passage, along with others mentioned later in this study, shows multiple unique connections with the book of Moses that are not found in the Bible and go beyond the connections previously noted by Reynolds. These additional connections between the book of Mormon and the book of Moses include the following connections. Parallel 38, the use of satanic oaths and covenants in forming secret combinations. Both the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses are explicit about the use of oaths and covenants to form the satanic conspiracies described as secret combinations and works of darkness. Moses 5 describes the oath that Satan has Cain make, see verse 29, telling Cain to swear by his throat and having others also swear by their lives to keep their murderous plot secret. Cain's descendant Lamech Likewise, quote, entered into a covenant with Satan, end quote, verse 49, and later slew Erod, his great-grandfather, see verses 59 to 50, quote, for the oath's sake, verse 50, not only Lamech, but also all them that had covenanted with Satan, quote, uh, quote, all them that had covenanted with Satan, end quote, were cursed by the Lord, verse 52. Later, when the Lord speaks to Enoch, he condemns the dark works of that era in which, in which, quote, in which men, quote, devised murder, end quote, Moses 6, 28, and ironically states that these wicked ones, quote, by their oaths, have brought upon themselves death, end quote, Moses 6, 29. As noted previously, Helaman 6, 25 and 6, 26 use the phrase secret oaths and covenants, and Helaman 6.21 also mentions, quote, their oaths and their covenants, end quote, as an instrumental in the secret combination of the Gadianton robbers. That oaths and covenants were used in secret co- secret combinations is also made clear in Alma Alma's statement Alma two uh, in verse in Alma thirty seven to his son Helaman two as he transfers stewardship of sacred records including the account from Jaredites with extensive details on their secret combinations he warns Helaman two his son not to share those details but to ret- but to quote retain all their oaths and their uh, retain all their oaths and their covenants and their agreements and their secret abominations yea and all their signs and their wonders ye shall retain from this people and they um, that they know them not lest peradventure they should fall into darkness also and be destroyed end quote. alma 3727 
um, quote, the secret plans of their oaths and their covenants, end quote, are again mentioned in verse 29. As the Nephites descended into, into darkness, 4th Nephi 142 relates that, quote, the wicked part of the people began to build up the secret oaths and combinations of Gadianton, end quote. Finally, in describing the establishment of a deadly secret combination among the Jaredites, Moroni uses the term oaths in Ether 8, 15, 16, and 20. Both the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses clearly teach that satanic oaths and covenants are used to establish and maintain the murderous secret combinations of both that both texts warn against. Parallel 39, the great antiquity of secret combinations and satanic covenants. The Book of Moses teaches that Satan's murderous secret combinations date back to Cain and continue to be present at least unto Enoch's day. Cain, after being chastised by the Lord for his improper sacrifice, quote, loved Satan more than God, end quote, Moses 5.28, and was approached by Satan with an offer to form a secret combination with others uh, with a satanic oath in order to have Satan's assistance and to be able to kill Abel without fear of being caught, see Moses 5.29-31. This combination is later continued by Lamech, who, like Satan, becomes, quote, the master of the great secret, end quote, that Satan had administered to Cain, Moses 5.49. Such murderous secret works over, uh, would become widespread as Satan continued to have dominion over the hearts of men. See Moses 6.15. These ancient origins are consistent with Helaman 6.27, which dates secret, co- secret combinations back to Cain. Works of darkness and secret combinations are referred to as well as well in 2 Nephi 26.22. There it states that they were founded by Satan and were known, quote, in times of old, unquote. And then here's that verse. And there were also secret combinations, even as in times of old, according to the combinations of the devil, for he is the founder of all these things, yea, the founder of murder and works of darkness. Yea, and he leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord, until he bindeth them with his strong cords forever. End quote. Being known in times of old suggests that these secret combinations were mentioned on the brass plates, though details of their covenants and signs may not have been recorded there or on Nephite records, according to Helaman 6.26, to reduce the risk of others using, using that information to seek for power. Records brought by the Jaredites also gave information about the secret covenants of ancient people. As the daughter of Jared works to establish a secret, a secret combination and murder her father, she speaks of, quote, the record which our fathers brought across the great deep, unquote, and the account concerning them of old, who, quote, by their secret plans did obtain kingdoms and great glory, unquote. Ether 8, verse 9, see also Ether 8, 17. Ether 9, 26 mentions a, mentions a later man, Heth, embracing the secret plans of old to slay his father and gain the throne. Ether 10.33 also speaks of wicked Jaredites who, quote, adopted the old plans and administered oaths after the manner of the ancients and sought again to destroy the kingdom, end quote, unquote. Such knowledge from the Jaredites may also have adversely affected later Nephite society. Parallel 40. Cain's involvement in a, in a secret combination to keep Abel's murder secret. Though there is overlap with the previous point on the antiquity of secret combinations, the specific identification of Cain as the first man to enter into a secret combination is still a noteworthy connection to the Book of Moses. Helaman 6.26 specifically notes that it was Satan, quote, who did plot with Cain, that if he would murder his brother Abel, it should not be known unto the world, and, uh, end, unquote. This fits Moses 5.29 well. Here's that passage. 
And Satan said unto Cain, Swear unto me by thy throat, and if thou tell it, thou shalt die, and swear thy brethren by their heads, and by the living God, that they tell it not. For if they tell it, they shall surely die, and this, that thy father may not know it. And this day I will deliver thy brother Abel into thine hands. Uh, parallel 41. The persistence of Satan's secret combinations, not only with Cain, but with other followers. Moses 5.29 indicates that Satan's plot with Cain involved Cain's brethren, while later we read that it, it can continued through his descendant Lamech. See Moses 5.49-51. And began to spread among all the sons of men, and it was among the sons of men. End quote. Uh, unquote. Moses 5.52. Until, quote, the works of darkness began to prevail among all the sons of men. Unquote. Moses 5.55. Moses 6.15 also tells us that secret works of darkness eventually became widespread and highly destructive. Likewise, Helaman 6.27 tells us that Satan not only plotted with Cain, with Cain for the murder of Abel, but then, quote, did plot with Cain and his followers from that time forth, and unquote. These satanic conspiracies also became widespread in their destructive influence among both the Jaredites and Nephites. Moroni wrote that, quote, they are had among all people, Unquote, Ether 8.20, and he prophesied that they would be among our societies today. See Ether 8.20 20, uh, to verse 26. Widespread indeed. The oaths of satanic secret combinations would involve death for, death for violating the oath and uh, to persist would logically have mechanisms to enforce the oath. See Moses 5.29. We see the oath being enforced when Lamech, Cain's descendant and later leader of what is presumably the successor of Cain's band, slays Erod his great-grandfather, -grandfa for revealing the secret to others. See Moses 5, 49-51. Likewise, Helaman 6:24 states that the Gadianton robbers had their own justice system based on, quote, laws of their wickedness, and, unquote, to punish those who improperly revealed their secrets and crimes. Helaman 6:24. The structure of the system, including the, the oaths, the opportunities for gain and power, and the means for enforcing secrecy, helped these combinations spread widely, not only in the very ancient societies described in the Book of Moses, but also in two great civilizations in the Book of Mormon. Parallel 42. Knowing slash distinguishing brothers in secret combinations. Moses 5.51 states that, quote, from the days of Cain, there was a secret combination, and their works were in the dark, and they knew every man his brother, and unquote. This seems related to Helaman 6.22 regarding the brotherhood within secret, secret combinations in which signs and oaths were used to distinguish or recognize one's brothers in the combination. Quote, and it came to pass that they did have their signs, yea, their secret signs and their secret words, and this that they might distinguish a brother who had entered into the covenant, that whatsoever wickedness his brother should do, he should not be injured by his brother, nor by those who did belong to his band who had taken this covenant. Unquote. Many Book of Mormon passages involving dust, chains, and related motifs seem to involve shaking and trembling. Chains and the captivity of Satan are sometimes directly associated with shaking and trembling, as in 2 Nephi 1.13, Shake off the awful chains, spoken by Lehi, the trembling parent, who also urges his sons to arise from the dust, in verse 14. 2 Nephi 1.23, Shake off the chains, 2 Nephi 9. 44 to 45, shake off the chains, which in parallel to shaking of garments to, uh, and shaking off, which is parallel to shaking, to the, to the shaking of garments and shaking off iniquities in verse 44, and 2 Nephi 28, 
verses 18 to 19. Verse 18 says that the great and abominable church must tumble to the earth. And then verse 19 says that the kingdom of the devil must shake, and the devil will grasp them with his everlasting chains. The Book of Mormon blends dust and chains as symbols of captivity and death and refers to shaking and describing liberation from both. Isaiah 14 is also quoted in 2 Nephi 24, where Lucifer, slash the king of Babylon, now overthrown and brought down to the pit, is identified in verse 16 as one who, quote, made the earth to tremble, uh, unquote, and, quote, did shake kingdoms, unquote. In the Book of Mormon, shaking also plays a role, as in some references involving dust or chains mentioned earlier, 2 Nephi 1, verses 13 and 23, 2 Nephi 9 to 40, 44 to 45, and 2 Nephi 28, 19. Other connections may be weaker than in other cases we've explored here and may not have been the likely source for Nephite expressions, although the relationship may still be considered. In the last days, quote, the heavens shall shake and also the earth, unquote, as, as the heavens are, quote, darkened and a veil of darkness, unquote, covers the earth. Moses 7:61. Satan began quote, Satan began to tremble and the earth shook unquote, as Moses withstood him Moses 1:21. When Enoch got a taste of the Lord's perspective and understood the misery that he, that humans faced quote, his heart swelled wide as eternity or, or in, in brackets here or he beheld eternity per the OT2 and his bowels yearned and all eternity shook Moses 7:41. Uh, unquote, 741. The people also tremble as Moses teaches them, warning of Satan's temptations and explaining that through the fall we are made, quote, partakers of misery and woe, unquote, Moses 6, verses 47 to 49. While these examples do not directly involve the liberating motifs of shaking off dust or chains found in some Book of Mormon passages, which are more aligned with Isaiah 52, 2, they have some commonality with passages describing the Lord's power and the fall of Satan's dominion. Parallel 44, misery, either for Satan or his followers. Another possible link to consider is the misery that Satan brings upon his followers and that Satan himself faces. Misery, or miserable, occurs several times in the KGV, but not in the context of the fate of the wicked who yield to Satan, as is taught in, the, in ominous language in Moses 7.37. Quote, but behold, their sin shall be upon the heads of their fathers, Satan shall be their father, and misery shall be their doom, and the whole heavens shall weep over them, even all the workmanship of mine hands. Wherefore, should not the heavens weep, seeing these shall suffer? Unquote. This passage strongly implies that both mortals and Satan suffer misery for their rebellion. If the sins of wicked children are upon the heads of their wicked parents, are not all those sins upon the head of Satan, who, quote, shall be their father, unquote, is not their doom, collectively the doom of the wicked and of Satan? But Satan's misery is also graphically depicted in the opening chapter of the book of Moses as Moses begins to see the bitterness of hell in his encounter with Satan, Moses 1.20. When Moses resists, uh, Satan cries, quote, with a loud voice, with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, Moses 1.20, and unquote, Moses 1.22. The line, Satan shall be their father, and misery shall be their doom, Moses 7.37, is a perfect anti-parallel to the gospel message for those who follow Jesus Christ. The occurrences of the term misery or miserable are much more common in the Book of Mormon than in the Bible, and much more consistent with the Book of Moses' usage. 
the number of occurrences in the Book of Mormon is not necessarily significant, since later writers may have been drawing on Lehi's heavy use of that term, but the usage by Lehi and others is generally quite consistent with the teachings in the Book of Moses. Heavy use of the word misery is found in the, por- in the portion of Lehi's speech given in 2 Nephi 2, where misery is involved in several contrasts, 2 Nephi 2, verses 11, 13, and 23, and being miserable is part of the punishment of the wicked, see verse 5. Misery is also presented as a goal of Satan for all humankind, for because, quote, he had fallen from heaven, unquote, and had become, quote, miserable forever, he sought also the misery of all mankind, unquote, verse 18 a goal reiterated in verse 27. Second Nephi 9, discussed later in the study, also twice associates Satan with misery. Second Nephi 9, verses 9 and 46. King Benjamin warns the wicked that they face a state of misery, Mosiah 3:25. Many references to misery come from the words of Alma, too, a man who was a student of the brass plates, and his references include the misery of those who inherit the kingdom of the devil, see Alma 41:4. Building on the principle of opposition that Lehi introduced. Alma 3.26 speaks of those fallen in war going to, quote, eternal happiness or eternal misery, according to the spirit which he listed to obey, unquote. Other relevant examples include Alma 9.11, 26.20, and verses as well as verses 17, 20, and 21, Alma 42, verses 1 and 26, Helaman 3.29, uh, Helaman 5.12 and 7.16, also 12.26, and Mormon 8.38. Moses 7.41 also mentions the misery of the wicked. In the KGV, misery is usually used to describe an afflicted state in mortality and is not explicitly associated with following Satan. True, the basic idea of the wicked being damned naturally suggests that they will be miserable after this life, but the use of related language in the KGV does not seem as clear, clearly related to the Book of Mormon as the Book of Moses does. For example, Romans 3.16 speaks of the wicked and states that, quote, destruction and misery are in their ways, unquote. But in context, this appears to be saying that the wicked spread destruction and misery in their mortal lives by hurting others, rather than saying that they face misery and doom with Satan. Or, as the International Standard Version, ISV, puts it, ruin and misery characterize their lives, unquote. James 5.1 warns rich men about the miseries that shall come upon them, with, with, uh, without, without clearly stating when or noting an association with Satan. Also relevant is Re- Revelation 3.17, where the Lord speaks against the complacent church in Laodicea and warns that while the Laodiceans may feel rich and secure, in reality they are, quote, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, unquote. But again, this is not directly describing the post-mortal state of the wicked and is not explicitly connected with Satan. Thus, while it is certainly possible that the concept of the wicked being miserable or unhappy could be based on general concepts from the Bible, the specific language of the Book of Mormon does not appear to be drawing upon, does not appear to be drawing directly from the use of misery or miserable in the Bible, but seems to be more closely connected to the teachings of the Book of Moses. Parallel 45, Misery and Woe. When Enoch undertook to teach the people why all men must repent, Moses 6.50, he explained that as a consequence of the fall of Adam, we are made partakers of misery and woe, Moses 6.48. Nephi prophets borrowed that same language four times in calling their people to repentance. 
Lehi called upon his rebellious sons to awake to awake from the sleep of hell and to shake off the awful chains by which the devil carries the children of men, quote, away captive down to the eternal gulf of misery and woe, unquote, 2 Nephi 1, verse 13. Before commanding the apostate Nephites at Ammonihah to repent, Alma too told them that had it not been for God's matchless power, mercy, and long-suffering toward them, they should have long since been, quote, cut off from the face of the earth, unquote, and, quote, been consigned to a state of endless misery and woe, unquote, Alma 9.11. After reminding his sons about Amulek's teachings about repentance, Nephi too urged them to remember to build their foundations, quote, on the rock of our Redeemer, unquote, so that, quote, when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, when all this hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe, unquote. Helaman 5.12. Nephi, too, also told the curious crowd around his garden tower that the devil had gained, quote, great hold upon their hearts, unquote, and that he was seeking, and that he was, Quote, seeking to hurl away their souls down to everlasting misery and endless woe. Unquote. Helaman 7.15-16 Like the previous examples, he then called on them to repent. Quote, o repent ye, repent ye, why will ye, di- why will ye die? Turn ye, turn ye to the Lord your God. Unquote. Verse 17 There are several things to notice here. As with, all the fra- uh, as with all the other phrasings featured in this paper, non-biblical wording found in the book of Moses is featured repeatedly in the writings of the Nephite prophets. Not only are the same words used four times in Nephite teaching, but each, occur- each occurrence is placed in the same immediate context as the Book of Mormon example, the teaching of repentance as essential for human salvation. These clearly demonstrate the likelihood that the phrase misery and woe in the Book of Mormon is borrowed from the Book of Mormon. But there is more. While using the same basic phrase, the Nephites had apparently enriched and developed its meaning in three ways that show up in all four examples. The first is the way each of the four Nephite prophets linked that linked the misery and woe resulting from wickedness to the influence of the devil. That linkage is immediate and explicit in three Book of Mormon examples and is brought in by Alma near the end of his speech when he clarifies that all men can be delivered by Jesus Christ, but, quote, if they had been evil, they shall reap the damnation of their souls according to the power and captivation of the devil, devil unquote, Alma 9.28. Second, all four Nephite examples use endless, eternal, or everlasting to describe this misery and woe, and Nephi even calls it an everlasting misery and endless woe, Helaman 7.16, and that would be Nephi 2. Uh, finally, the recurring phrase, misery and woe, would appear to be a promising example of the frequent Old Testament figure of speech called hendiadis. In its simplest form, a hendiadis is a conjunction of two nouns that take on a combined meaning and cannot be translated accurately with equivalent terms for each noun in the pair. Examples would include brimstone and fire in Genesis 19.24 and spirit of prophecy and revelation used as a hendiadis 12 times in the Book of Mormon. Such hendiadises could be seen as their own could be seen as their own terms with recognized usage that are accompanied um, by their own descriptors. It was it has already been demonstrated that the language of repentance in the Book of Mormon has all, has almost a dozen widely repeated hendiadises that great that greatly enrich the concept in the Nephite gospel. 
We don't know what the what original language lies behind misery and woe in the Nephite text, but if we assume that the text has a Hebrew background, some obvious candidates suggest themselves. The Old Testament has three different words, usually translated as woe, and all have the same general meaning, announcing lamentation for one's fate, often the consequence of one's own sins. Sins. The obvious candidate for misery would be ra or ra'a, usually meaning evil, misery, or distress. Interpreting misery and woe as a hendiatus with these Hebrew with these Hebrew terms in mind, the phrase could mean lamentation for one's own evil or wickedness. Add to that, uh, add to that one of the apparently stuck Nephite adjectives, eternal, everlasting, or endless, and we get a very rich set of meanings for Nephite prophets to evoke when calling people to repentance by using the phrase misery and woe. Parallel 46, the infinite nature of God's love and the atonement. In Moses 7, the misery of the wicked not only caused God to weep, see Moses 7:28-31, but also, as we see in verse 41, caused Enoch to experience a transcendent taste of God's compassion for humankind. Enoch saw the wicked with a touch of God's perspectives as he looked upon as he quote looked upon their wickedness and their misery and wept and stretched forth his arms and his heart swelled wide as eternity and his bowels yearned and all eternity shook. End quote. Powerfully expressing God's love and perhaps pointing to his son's suffer, offering on the cross, Enoch stretches out his arms as his body and soul yearn for the welfare of others. Terrell and Fiona Gibbons describe this scene as plumbing, as quote, plumbing the mystery of the weeping God, unquote, in which Enoch, quote, is raised to a perspective from which he sees the world through God's eyes, unquote. His heart swells and his bowels yearn, again pointing to Christ's suffering that gave him the bowels of mercy mentioned several times in the Book of Mormon. See Messiah 15.9, Alma 26.37, and Alma 34.15. Compare Alma 7.12 and 3 Nephi 17, verses 6 to 7. If something similar to this passage were present on the brass plates, it could have served as a basis for a few parts of the Book of Mormon that are linked to the brass plates. The Book of Mormon's first recurrence to an infinite atonement occurs in 2 Nephi 9's first reference to an infinite atonement occurs in 2 Nephi 9.7, a passage surrounded by other material that appears to be rich in Book of Moses themes. Those connections include Reynolds' concept of transgression fall, fall death in Moses 6.59, that's reflected in 2 Nephi 9.6, see Table 1, and multiple concepts in 2 Nephi 9.9, see Table 3. These will be discussed later. There are also references to the plan of salvation in 2 Nephi 9.6 and 13, compare Moses 6.62, the fall of Satan and his angels in 2 Nephi 9.8-9, compare Moses 4, verses 3-4 and 7.26. Temporal versus spiritual death in 2 Nephi 9, 11-12, compare Moses 6:63, And the chains of Satan in 2 Nephi 9:45, see Moses 7, 26, and 57. Enoch was, quote, clothed upon with glory, unquote, in Moses 7, 3, as he saw the Lord in a theophany on a mountain. And in 2 Nephi 9:14, the righteous who enter the Lord's presence will be, quote, clothed with purity, yea, even with the robe of righteousness, unquote also suggestive of the beautiful garments mentioned in a highly influential passage in Isaiah, see Isaiah 52, verses 1 to 2, a passage of foundational importance in the Book of Mormon's brilliant usage of the ancient theme of rising from the dust. Given the abundance of possible links to Book of Moses material in 2 Nephi 9, 
Is it possible that the concept of an infinite atonement was on the brass plates and was possibly tied to Enoch's vision? This concept is admittedly uh, relatively speculative, but still may have value. Parallel 47, Rage and Satan's Dominion Over the Hearts of Men Reynolds points to Moses 6.15 as a possible source for three important Book of Mormon concepts, satanic secret works related to secret combinations in Moses 5.51, seeking for power, and the phrase wars and bloodshed, a phrase frequently found in the Book of Mormon, though sometimes with slight variations. Two more concepts in this verse may merit consideration, Satan's dominion over men and his ability to rage in their hearts. This verse, um, the verse says, uh, quote, And the children of men were numerous upon all the face of the land. And in those days Satan had great dominion among men, and raged in their hearts. And from thenceforth came wars and bloodshed, and a man's hand was against his own brother, in administering death because of secret works, seeking for power, unquote, Moses 6.15. The theme of dominion over men is akin to Satan's quest for power over men, which Reynolds views as a theme from Moses 4.3, where Satan sought to destroy the agency of man and, and sought God's own power. Satan's dominion over man may seem equally relevant, and that word, dominion, may be used to reflect Satan's corruption of the, of the dominion that God has, a tiny portion of which God delegated to Adam and Eve. See Moses 2, verses 26 and 28. Moses 6.15 adds a dominion as a dimension to Satan's power over man by showing that his dominion has a relationship to anger, for his dominion is manifest as he rages in their hearts, leading to wars, bloodshed, and so forth. In light of Moses 6.15 and the link between Satan's dominion slash power uh, hold over men and his anger-inducing influence over the hearts of men, a persistent pattern uh, in the Book of Mormon becomes interesting. For most of the Book of Mormon references to Satan's power over men also mentioned their hearts. Indeed, one of the first examples of this is 1 Nephi 14.7, which relates the hardness of men's hearts to the captivity, captivity of the devil. Satan's influence over the hearts of men, again, being a key tool toward achieving his aim of gaining dominion and making people his captives. Many further examples are listed in Table 3 and are discussed in more detail in Lindsay's publication on the theme of rising from the dust in the Book of Mormon. Parallel 48, administering death. Yet another term of interest in Moses 6.15 may strike modern readers as almost humorous. Quote, a man's hand was against his own brother in, a, in administering death because of secret works seeking for power, unquote. This unusual term, not found in the King James Bible, occurs in Alma 5719, where Alma reports a battle in which his band of 2060 stripling warriors, quote, did administer death unto all those who opposed them, unquote. The word administer is not uncommon in the KGV, occurring only in, is not common in the KGV, occurring only in 2 Corinthians 8, 19 to 20, where it is used in a positive sense, administering grace. The word occurs many times in the Book of Mormon, typically for positive concepts such as administering grace or justice. In addition to the combination of administering with death in Alma 57.19, a murder is committed in Alma 47.18, as Amalekiah has a servant, quote, administer poison by degrees to the Hontai, while Alma 55.30 and 32 describes attempts by the Lamanites to, quote, administer, Unquote, poison or poisonous wine to Nephite guards. 
The account of Amalekiah's murder of Lahantai is an excellent example of the murderous secret works of the wicked, uh, of the wicked described in the Book of Moses, and it even begins with Amalekiah sending quote, a secret embassy, <clears throat> a secret embassy unquote, Alma forty seven ten, in order to lure Lahantai into a secret deal with Amalekiah, in which Lahantai would appoint him as second in command, thereby allowing him to be first in command upon Lahantai's death. Lahantai's murder through administering poison closely fits with Moses six fits what Moses six fifteen laments, for Malachiah's quote, hand was against his own brother, a fellow military officer in the Lamanite army, in administering death because of secret works seeking for power. Unquote, Moses six fifteen. The lethal administering of poison in, in Alma forty seven eighteen, in the same context found in the book of Moses's use of administering death, increases the odds that the relationship may not ne- merely be fortuitous, but also reflects influence from the, from the book of Moses in the wording of the Book of Mormon. It is also a good example of a relationship that makes much more sense when viewed as a relationship in which the meaning in the uh, in which the wording in the Book of Moses influences the Book of Mormon rather than the other way around. Parallel 49, God's Word Returning Void The Book of Moses, Isaiah, and the Book of Mormon all use the concept of God's Word returning or becoming void, a concept not found elsewhere in the Scriptures. The context used in the Book of Mormon corresponds most closely to that of the Book of Moses. First consider Moses 4.30, quote, for as I, the Lord God, liveth, even so my words cannot return void, for they shall go forth out of my mouth, for, for, for as they go forth out of my mouth, they must be fulfilled. Unquote. Similar language involving void is in Isaiah 55.11. So shall my word be that go forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I, which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I send it. Unquote. Now compare the use of void in Alma 12, 22 to 23 and 26. Now Alma said unto him, This is the thing which I was about to explain. Now we see that Adam did fall by partaking of the forbidden fruit, according to the word of God. And thus we see that by his fall that all mankind became a lost and fallen people. Now I say, behold, and now behold, I say unto you, that if it had been possible for Adam to have partaken of the fruit of the tree of life at this time, that there would have been no death. And the word would have been void, making God a liar. For he said, If thou eat, thou shalt surely die. Now behold, if it were possible that our first parents could have went forth and partaken of the tree of life, they would have been miserable forever, having no preparatory state. And thus the plan of redemption would have been frustrated, and the word of God would have returned void, taking none effect. It is possible that Isaiah was the source behind the use of void in Alma 12, or may have provided the language for Joseph's choice of wording in both Alma 12 and Moses 4.30. What is interesting, though, is that the concept of God's word being voided in Moses 4 is in the specific context of the Garden of Eden and the fall of Adam, just as it is in Alma 12. The only other use of the word void in the Book of Mormon occurs later in the Book of Alma in chapter 42, and in a context even more closely aligned with the Book of Moses, specifically specifically referring to the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Quote, now behold, my son, I will explain this thing unto thee. 
For behold, after the Lord God sent our first parents forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken, yea, he drove out man, and he placed in the east end of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the tree of life. And now we see that man had become as God, knowing good and evil, and lest he should put forth his hand and, and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, that the Lord God placed cherubims and a flaming sword, that he should not partake of the fruit. And thus we see that there was a time granted unto man to repent, yea, a probationary time, a time to repent and serve God. For behold, if Adam had put forth his hand immediately and partook of the tree of life, he would have lived forever, according to the word of God, having no space for repentance. Yea, and also the word of God would have been void, and the great plan of salvation would have been frustrated. Alma 42, 2-5. All three occurrences of void with respect to the Word of God in the Book of Mormon involve the precise scene where it is present in the Book of Moses, and they come from Alma II, a keeper and careful student of the brass plates, who discusses them explicitly, see Alma 37, and quotes from them several times, for example, Alma 33. Parallel 50. Esteeming as not, setting at not. Another potential connection between the brass plates and the book of Moses involves the concept of esteeming scripture as a thing of not, not, N-A-U-G-H-T and N-O-U-G-H-T both occur in the King James Bible, but not in the context given in Moses 1.40-41. Quote, And now, Moses, my son, I will speak unto thee concerning this earth upon which thou standest. And thou shalt write the things which I shall speak. And in a day when the children of men shall esteem my words as not, and take many of them from the book which thou shalt write, behold, I will raise up another like unto thee, and they shall be had again among the children of men, among as many as shall believe. Now consider, now consider First Nephi 19, 6-9, which mentions things which some men esteem of great worth, that others set it not and trample under their feet. Quote, Nevertheless, I do not write anything upon plates, save it be I think it save it be that I think it be sacred. For the things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and soul, others set at naught and trample under their feet. Yea, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words. They they do set him at naught, and hearken to the voice of his counsels, and hearken not to the voice of his counsels. And the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. This passage begins with a reference to writing on plates, then follows in verse 10 with a reference to other prophets on the brass plate, specifically citing Zenic, Zenus, and Nehem, who made prophecies of the ministry and sufferings of Christ. Thus it is interesting that as, that as Nephi 1 was, thinking about the word of God as recorded on, the, on plates, right before quoting from the brass plates, he would use language similar to, to what is found in the book of Moses, and in the same context, esteeming the word of God as not. Strikingly similar to the predicted taking away of scripture in Moses 1.41, 2 Nephi 33.2-3 also uses esteem and not in the context of taking away sacred writings. Quote, But behold, there are many, uh, there are many that harden their hearts against the Holy Spirit, that it hath no place in them. Wherefore they cast many things away which are written, and esteem them as things of naught. But I, Nephi, have written what I have written, and esteem it as of great worth, and, and especially unto my people. Unquote. Once again, the connections to the Book of Moses come from one of the writers most reliant on the brass plates. Parallel 51: Raising up a prophet to restore ancient scripture. 
Moses 1.41, discussed in the previous section, also relates to 2 Nephi 3 and prophecies of Joseph and the Restoration, where we read of the work of a Latter-day Seer who will bring forth God's word and restore knowledge of God's ancient covenants. See 2 Nephi 3, verses 67 and 12 and 24. Uh, in that chapter, the Lord says he will raise up a seer to do his work of restoration, language also found in Moses 141. This seems to draw on Deuteronomy 18, 15-18, where God tells Moses that he will raise up a prophet like unto thee. But the concept of raising up a prophet like Moses for the work of restoring scriptures is not found in the Bible, while it is found in both the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses. Parallel 52, the workmanship of God's hands. Five times in the book of Moses, the Lord mentions the, quote, the workmanship of mine hands, unquote, or, quote, the workmanship of mine own hands, unquote, which refers to human beings. Moses 1, uh, 1 verse 4, chapter 7, verse 32, and verses 36 to 37 and 40. Workmanship also occurs several times in the King James Bible, but almost always refers to human craftsmanship. The closest parallel that the Bible has to the phrase in the book of Moses is Paul's statement that we, that quote, we are his, God's, workmanship, unquote. But he doesn't speak of hands, Ephesians 2.10. However, in Jacob 4.9, Jacob speaks of humans as the workmanship of his, God's, hands, consistent with the book of Moses. Uh, and again, coming from a writer known to have thoroughly studied the brass plates. Parallel 53, men ordained after the order. In Psalm 110.4, in a scene apparently involving God the Father speaking to Jehovah, we read, the Lord, hath quote, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Unquote. Paul cites this passage several times as he describes the divine calling and role of Jesus Christ. See Hebrews 5 verses 6 and 10. Uh, Hebrews 6, verse 20, uh, 7, verse 11, and also verse 17 and 21. The book of Moses, like the book of Mormon, does not speak of anyone being after the order of Melchizedek, but after the order of, of, of God or of his son, and adds an expansive twist by showing that mortal men can likewise be called and ordained after this holy order. Uh, and the quote, and the Lord ordained Noah after his own order and commanded him that he should go forth and declare his gospel unto the children of men, even as it was given unto Enoch, Moses 8.19. Moses 6, verses 67 and 68 uh, is also relevant, where Adam, after being baptized, is told that he is also, quote, after the order, unquote, of the Son of God, and that through this means all men may become sons of God. Quote, uh, and thou art after the order of him who was without beginning or of days or end of years, from all eternity to all eternity. Behold, thou art one in me, a son of God, and thus may all become my sons. Amen. Again, it's Moses 6, 67 to 68. These concepts are strongly present in the Book of Mormon. First, consider Second Nephi 6, 2, where Jacob declares that he has been, quote, ordained after the manner of his, God's, holy order, unquote. When Alma, too, steps down as chief judge, Mormon writes that, quote, he confined himself wholly to the high priesthood of the holy order of God, unquote, Alma 4.20. Alma 2 uses such language several times, most completely in Alma 13.1-2. The Lord God, quote, the Lord God ordained priest after his holy order, which was after the order of his son, and those priests were ordained after the order of his son. Related, unquote, related references are found in Alma 5.44, 6 uh, verse 1, 
chapter 13, 6 to 10, and verse 14, Alma 43, 2, and also 49, 30, and Helaman 8:18. Interestingly, the wicked followers of Nehor stand in contrast to the true priesthood, as they are said to be, quote, after the order of the Nehors, unquote, twice in Alma 21.4 and once in Alma 24.28, or, quote, after the order of Nehor, uh, unquote, Alma 24.29. That the order was a faith or counterfaith is suggested in Alma 14.16, which states that a wicked judge in Ammonihah, quote, was after the order and faith of Nehor, unquote. Parallel 54. Natural man eyes or frame versus the spiritual slash the spirit slash spirits. Reynolds' original list of correlations included in uh, included the contrast between temporal and spiritual that is found in both the Book of Moses and the Book of Mormon. And Reynolds also noted that both texts discuss the natural man. A related contrast may also merit attention, that of nature and the natural man or natural eyes or the natural frame in contrast to the spiritual, including the spirit or spirits. After the encounter Moses had with the Lord in Moses 1, it took, many, it took, quote, many hours before Moses did again receive his natural strength like unto man, end quote, verse 10 of Moses 1. He then observed that it was his spiritual eyes and not his natural eyes that beheld God. For, quote, my natural eyes could not have beheld, for I should have withered and died in his presence. But his glory was upon me, and I beheld his face, for I was transfigured before him, end quote, verse, unquote, verse 11. Shortly thereafter, verse 14 tells us that Moses could look upon Satan, quote, in the natural man, unquote, since Satan lacked the intense glory that God bears. Here there are physical limits to what one can behold with the natural eyes. Natural eyes are again mentioned again, are, are, are mentioned again in Moses 6.36, where we learn that they cannot see spirits, but Enoch as a seer could behold such spiritual things. This follows verse 35, where the Lord tells Enoch to anoint thine eyes with clay and wash them and thou shalt see after following the Lord's instructions, Enoch is able to see what the natural eyes cannot. Another aspect of the contrast between the natural and, and the spiritual involves the creation account in Moses 3, where the Lord declares that he, quote, created all things spiritually before they were naturally upon the face of the earth, unquote, verse 5. And again, that, quote, all things were before created, but spiritually were they, were they created and made according to my word, unquote, verse 7. The distinction between spiritual and natural in the creation is also made specifically regarding trees in Moses 3.9. Uh, and out of the ground made I, the Lord God, to grow every tree naturally that is pleasant to the sight of man, and man could behold it. And, it. and it became also a living soul, for it was spiritual in the day that I created it. Unquote. This distinction between the natural and the spiritual may be reflected in King Benjamin's speech when he contrasts the natural man with the spiritual saint. Quote, For the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever. But if he yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh the saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord. Mosiah 3.19. There's a footnote pointing out that but if um, really corresponds to unless he. Or, you know, but if he yieldeth or unless he. Um, the opposite of the natural man is one who yields to the Holy Spirit and thus becomes a saint. Turning again to the eyes, seeing sacred spiritual things, such as when Moses saw the Lord himself, is an experience beyond the limitations of our natural eyes that also occurs in the Book of Mormon. When the brother of Jared had a divine encounter in Ether 3, quote, the veil was taken from off his eyes, unquote, verse 6, and he was able to see the finger of the Lord as it would appear on his physical body. 
This majestic but fearful experience caused the brother of Jared to fall down, struck with fear that he should be smitten. See verses 6, 8, and 19. Uh, But the Lord comforted him and showed himself more fully, telling the brother of Jared that because of his faith, he was redeemed from the fall and brought back into the Lord's presence, and that through him, those who believe on him shall become his sons and daughters. Verses 13 to 14. All that's in Ether 3. A related example occurs in the Book of Mormon when King Lamoni, after being taught the gospel by Ammon, turns to the Lord and has a spiritual encounter that overwhelms him physically, like the encounter of Moses that left him unconscious for many hours. See Alma 18, 41 to 43, and Moses 1, 9 to 10. As Lamoni was spiritually, quote, carried away in God, unquote, we read that his natural frame was overcome. Uh, here's the passage, quote, now, now this is what Ammon desired, for he knew that King Lamoni was under the power of God. He knew that the dark veil of unbelief being cast, he knew that the dark veil of unbelief being, being cast away from his mind, and the light which did light up his mind, which was the light of the glory of God, which was a marvelous light of his goodness, yea, this light had infused such joy into his soul, the cloud of darkness having been dispelled, and that the light of everlasting life was lit up in his soul, yea, he knew that this had over that this had overcame his natural frame, and he was carried away in God. Alma nineteen six. Being overcome by the encounter with the glory and light of God not only caused Lamoni to be physically overcome, but also caused fatigue or apparent unconsciousness in others in the Book of Mormon. After his first mentioned encounter with God, Lehi went home and, quote, cast himself upon his bed, being overcome with the Spirit, unquote, in 1 Nephi 1.7. Alma, too, spent three days in unconsciousness after his encounter with an angel, see Alma 36.10, and several others also fell to the ground or became unconscious after experiencing the light and glory of God. There was also a reference to the limited knowledge of heavenly things in the, in the natural man in Alma 26.21, and a mention of the natural frame in Alma 41.4, in the context of the resurrection of the soul, see Alma 41.2. Also compare Alma 42.9-10, where a discussion of contra, uh, uh, contrasting the spiritual and temporal is followed by a statement that men are carnal, sensual, and devilish, devilish by nature. A phrase also used by King Benjamin in Mosiah 3.16 in discussing the fall, shortly before he discusses the natural man in verse 19. Natural and spiritual bodies are contrasted in Paul's discussion of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15:44 and 46. In 1 Corinthians 21, uh, 2, 14, Paul also mentions the natural man and states that he receiveth, quote, that he, um, that, that he, quote, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned, unquote. The gap between spiritual knowledge and the abilities of the natural man is not unique to the Latter-day Saint scriptures, of course, but what seems to be unique is the contrast between seeing with the spiritual and with the natural eyes, including not just the physical limitations of the natural eyes, but also the overwhelming physical impact on the natural frame that an encounter with deity has. These themes and related language are shared in the Book of Moses and the Book of Mormon. Parallel 55, The Roles of a Seer. Building on the theme of natural versus spiritual eyes, the role of a seer in the Book of Moses resonates with teachings in the Book of Mormon. In an act symbolic of washing or purifying the natural eyes so that they can see that which is spiritual, the Lord instructs Enoch to anoint his eyes with clay and wash them so that he, he, quote, shalt see, unquote, Moses 6.35. As a result, he becomes a seer, quote, uh, this is from Moses 6:36. And he beheld the spirits that God had created, and he beheld all things which were not visible to the natural eye. And from thenceforth came the saying abroad in the land, <clears throat> A seer hath the Lord raised up unto his people. Unquote. 
In the Bible, the role and abilities of a seer are not easily distinguished from those of a prophet. In the book of Moses, we gain additional perspective as we see Enoch as a seer, being able to see spirits and invisible things, as well as seeing many future events and receiving great revelations, see Moses 6 and 7. Then, after receiving this gift, Enoch also worked as a prophet in declaring the need for repentance, baptism, and faith in the Lord, see Moses 6, 35 to 68, 7 verse 1, and verses 9 to 12, and worked as a leader who had who guided and gathered his people and established Zion. See Moses 7, 13 to 19. In the Book of Mormon, seers play similar roles. Mosiah 8, 13 to 17 tells us that whoever is commanded to look into the divine interpreters, tools presumably like the Urim and Thummim or seer stones, is called the seer. See verse 13. And that seers are revelators who can know of things to come and quote, secret things, unquote, and hidden things, um, verse 17, so that they can bring to light that which would otherwise never be known. See verses 16 to 18. But the secret things and hidden things revealed by seers in the Book of Mormon are not limited to the things of heaven in the translation of once hidden records. They also include the secret works and secret combinations of the wicked, that is, you know, exposing them. Regarding how the Lord uses interpreters, the key tools of a, of a seer in the Book of Mormon <clears throat> to reveal these secret works, Alma 2 explains, and this is from, uh, excuse me, this is from Alma 37, 22 to 26. For behold, the Lord saw that his people began to work in darkness, yea, work secret murders and abominations. Therefore the Lord said, if they did not repent, they should be destroyed from off the face of the earth. And the Lord said, I will prepare unto my servant Gazalem a stone which shall shine forth in darkness unto light, that I may discover unto my people which serve me, that I may discover unto them the works of their brethren, yea, their secret works, their works of darkness, their wickedness and abominations. And now, my son, these directors were prepared that the word of God might be fulfilled which he spake, saying, I will bring forth out of darkness unto light all their secret works and their abominations. And except they repent, I will destroy them from off the face of the earth. And I will bring to light all their secrets and abominations unto every nation that shall hereafter possess the land. And now, my son, we see that they did not repent. Therefore they have been destroyed. And thus far the word of God has been fulfilled. Yea, their secret abominations have been brought out of darkness and made known unto us. That's Alma 37. Uh, 22 to 26. Thus, the role of seers can involve seeing secret things and hidden things to oppose the secret works of darkness and secret combinations that are condemned in the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses. Their role clearly includes using such vision to preach repentance, baptism, and faith in Christ. In both texts, the role of a seer is far greater than seeing the future alone. Parallel 56. Perished in their sins. In Moses 7.1, Enoch states that while many have believed what Adam taught and have become sons of God, many others, quote, have believed not and have, peri- have perished in their sins, unquote. Abinadi, a student of the brass plates, speaks of, quote, those that have perished in their sins, unquote, in Mosiah 15.26. Also compare Mosiah 13.28. The combination of perishing with... Um, the combination of perishing within their sins is not found in the King James Bible. Though those who sin shall perish, according to Romans 2.12, the closest but still distant KGB parallel. Parallel 57. Sins slash cursing answered upon the heads of parents slash children. Moses 6.54 provides another possible link to the Book of Mormon regarding the responsibility for sin. Quote, Hence came the saying abroad among the people that the Son of God hath atoned for original guilt, wherein the sins of the parents cannot be answered upon the heads of the children, for they are whole from the foundation of the world. Unquote. Moses 7.37 has a similar concept with other, phrases, uh, with, with other phrases connected to the Book of Mormon. 
But behold, their sins, a quote, but behold, their sins shall be upon the heads of their fathers. Satan shall be their father, and misery shall be their doom, and the whole heaven shall weep over them, even all the workmanship of mine hands. Wherefore should not the heavens weep, seeing these shall suffer? Related passages in the Book of Mormon follow. Second uh, Nephi 4, 6, Wherefore, if ye are cursed, behold, I leave my blessing upon you, that the cursing may be taken from you, and be answered upon the heads of your parents. Uh, Jacob 1.19, And we did magnify our office unto the Lord, taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads, if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence, whereby, wherefore, by laboring with our mites, their blood might not come upon our garments. Otherwise, their blood would come upon our garments, and we would not be found spotless at the last day. And now we'll read from Jacob 3.10. Wherefore, ye shall remember your children, uh, how that ye have grieved their hearts because of the example that ye have sat, sat before them. And also, remember that ye may, because of your filthiness, bring your children unto destruction, and their sins be heaped upon your heads at, that, at the last day. And Mosiah 29.30-31. And I command you to do these things in the fear of the Lord. And I command you to do these things and, uh, and that ye have no king that if these people commit sins and iniquities, they shall be answered upon their own heads. For behold, I say unto you, the sins of many people have been answered by, have been caused by the iniquities of their kings. Therefore, their iniquities are answered upon the heads of their kings. Isaiah 29, 30-31. Also possibly relevant, blood coming upon the heads of the wicked occurs in 1 Nephi 22:13, Alma 60:10, and Mormon 8:40. The closest concept in the King James Bible may be that of the scapegoat in Leviticus 16:21-22. Quote, and Aaron shall lay both hands, both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and he shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And if the goat shall bear upon him all their, and the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let the let go the goat in the wilderness. Unquote. Also relevant is 1 Kings 2.33. Their blood shall, be a, shall therefore return upon the head of Joab, and upon the head of his seed forever. But upon David, and upon his seed, and upon his house, and upon his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. The use of the, of the verb answer in this context adds a unique element common to the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses. Parallel 58. The glory of God and its relationship to eternal life. In his discussion of the ancient literary elements in Moses 1, Mark J. Johnson sees the many references to glory in that chapter to be consistent with ancient authorship, and he states that, states that quote, the predominance and preeminence of the word glory reveals Moses 1 to be doxological, that is, being a witness and praise to God's glory, unquote. In Moses 1, Moses uses the contrast between the glory of God that he experiences and Satan's lack of glory to judge between God and Satan in a literary technique known as the, as the um, reeve, uh, a reeve disputation pattern, or uh, R-I-B is a transliteration from the Hebrew, or the covenant or prophetic lawsuit. Indeed, the glory of God is an important theme in several chapters of the book of Moses. As it does in the book of Moses, in the Bible, the glory of God can, tempor can temporarily come upon individuals such as Moses, but in the book of Moses, it also comes upon God's covenant people in the city of Enoch and causes their enemies to fear. See Moses 7:17. Even more unlike the Old Testament, the glory of God is also described as something that, that, something that the faithful may receive after this life. Um, this is quoting now from Moses 6:59 and 61. Quote, that by reason of transgression cometh the fall, which fall bringeth death. And inasmuch as ye were born into the world by water and blood and, and the spirit, which I have made, and so become of dust a living soul, 
Even so ye must be born again into, into the kingdom of heaven, of water, and of the Spirit, and be cleansed by blood, even the blood of my only begotten, that ye might be sanctified from all sin, and enjoy the words of eternal life in this world, and, and of eternal life in this world, and eternal life in the world to come, even immortal glory. Therefore it is given to abide in you the record of heaven, the comforter, the peaceable things of immortal glory. End quote. Or unquote. A famous book of uh, famous book of Moses verse related to the glory of God is among those seen by Reynolds as possibly having an influence on the Book of Mormon. Uh, Moses one thirty nine. For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. In this case, Reynolds considered the phrase eternal life, which is also found in the New Testament, but showed that the Book of Moses usage of that phrase may be more relevant as a potential influence on the Book of Mormon. The use of the term glory in this context and in the previously mentioned context of humans entering into, entering into the glory of God in the next life may both serve as additional influences on the Book of Mormon. A few verses in the Book of Mormon seem to reflect the message, if not some of the phrasing, of Moses 1.39, such as Alma 2's exaltation in Alma 29.9, quote, I know, I, I know that which the Lord hath commanded me, and I glory in it. I do not glory of myself, but I glory in that which the Lord hath commanded me. Yea, and this is my glory, that perhaps I might be an instrument in the hands of God to bring some soul to repentance, and this is my joy. End quote. Unquote. Uh, likewise, in, in 2 Nephi 1.25, Lehi tells his rebellious sons, uh, tells his rebellious sons that Lehi, Nephi 1, quote, hath not sought for power nor authority over you, but he hath sought the glory of God and your own eternal welfare, unquote. Here, seeking the glory of God is linked to seeking the eternal welfare or eternal life of others. Further, in the allegory of the olive tree, the Lord of the vineyard explains that he wishes that for his olive trees to, quote, be sufficiently strong that perhaps they may bring forth good fruit unto me, and I may yet have glory in the fruit of my vineyard, unquote, Jacob 5.54. In other words, the work that represents the gathering of Israel and the saving of souls gives God glory. The work of redeeming humankind is his work and his glory. Jacob 5.72 reminds us that the work of the gathering in the Lord's vineyard is indeed his work and his labor. Quote, and it came to pass that the servants did go in, did go to it and labor with their mites, that the, that the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them, with them. And the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them, unquote. The concept of humans having a hope of the glory of God after this life is found in several Book of Mormon passages with various levels of affinity for the Book of Moses. Such passages often reflect entering into or receiving glory as a consequence of being redeemed by the Savior. Quote, here's Jacob 4.4, 4, quote, for, for this intent have we written these things, that they may, may know that we knew of Christ, and we had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming. And not only we ourselves had a hope of his glory, but also all the holy prophets which were before us. And now we we'll read from Jacob 4.11. Wherefore, beloved, be reconciled unto him through the atonement of Christ, his only begotten Son, that ye may obtain a resurrection according to the power of the resurrection which is in Christ, and be presented as the firstfruits of Christ unto God, having faith, and having obtained a good hope of glory in him, before he manifested himself in the flesh. Unquote. Teachings about ba the basis of the atonement, the resurrection, repentance, and faith in Christ are linked to the, quote, hopes of glory, unquote, also found in Alma 22.14, where the teachings of the Nephite missionary Aaron to a Lamanite king are summarized. Quote, and since man had fallen, he could not merit anything of himself, but the sufferings and death of Christ atoneth for their sins through faith and repentance, etc., and that he breaketh the bands of death, that the grave shall have no victory, and that the sting of death should be swallowed up in the hopes of glory. And Aaron did expound all these things unto the king. 
unquote. Alma, too, looks forward to his, to his future resurrection, knowing that God, quote, will raise him up at the last day to dwell with him in glory, unquote, Alma 36, 28. Regarding believers who were martyred in Ammonihah, Alma, too, says that, quote, the, glory receiveth, the Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory, unquote, Alma 14, 11. This glory of God is shared with his children. Uh, this is shared with his... Ah, this glory of God shared with his children is associated with joy in Helaman 5.44, when Nephi 2 and Lehi 2, while in a Lamanite prison, had a miraculous experience that converted the surrounded Lamanites and filled them, quote, with that joy which is unspeakable and full of glory, unquote. Finally, in a time of destruction and sorrow, Mormon comforts his son Moroni by telling him in Mormon 9.25 to, quote, be faithful uh, to, quote, be faithful in, in Christ, and may not the things which I have written grieve thee, to weigh thee down unto death, but may Christ lift thee up, and may his sufferings and death, and the shewing his body unto our fathers, and his mercy and long suffering, and the hope of his glory, and of eternal life, rest in your mind forever, unquote. The hope of God's glory is linked to the gift of eternal life, bringing together two concepts also found in Moses 139. The promise of entering into or partaking of God's glory is a doctrine found to some degree in the New Testament, though it's often underplayed or overlooked by those Christians who may fail to understand the real relationship between God and man and the magnitude of the gifts that God wishes to give to his children through his grace and love. Peter writes of God giving us, quote, all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, unquote, so that we might be, quote, partakers of the divine nature, unquote, 2 Peter 1, 3 to 4. Paul speaks of the hope of the, quote, hope of the glory of God, unquote, that believers have due to the grace of Christ that they, that they access by faith, Romans 5, 2, uh, compare Colossians 1, 27. He also speaks of, quote, hope of his, God's, calling, and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, Ephesians 1.18. But the Book of Mormon's expansive teachings on the glory of God and eternal life for man would seem more closely aligned with the Book of Moses than, what is, than with what is in the King James Bible. Parallel 59, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Moses 1.22 reports that, quote, Satan cried with a loud voice, with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, unquote. The Bible has a number of verses combining weeping and either wailing, um, Esther 4.3, Jeremiah 9.10, Ezekiel 27.31, or gnashing, Luke 13.28, Matthew 8.12, 22.13, 24.51, and 25.30, or combining wailing and gnashing, Matthew 13.42, and verse 50. But um, not all three, as in Moses 1.22. In the Book of Mormon, Mosiah 16.2 has all three verbs. Quote, and then shall the wicked be cast out, that they might have cause to howl and weep and wail and gnash their teeth. And this because they would not hearken unto the voice of the Lord. <clears throat> Therefore the Lord redeemeth them not. Unquote, unquote. Interestingly, the verse that follows, Messiah 16.3, has further Book of Moses connections, employing the phrase carnal, sensual, and devilish, discussed previously, and references to the actions of Satan. Alma 40.13 has all three verbs. Quote, then shall it come to pass that the spirits of the wicked who are evil, for behold, they have no part nor portion of the spirit of the Lord, for behold, they choose evil works rather than good. Therefore, the spirit of the devil did enter into them and take possession of their house. And these shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, and this because of their own iniquity, being led captive by the will of the devil." Unquote. Note that this verse also contains a previously discussed potential connection to the book of Moses, the concept of being led captive by the will of the devil. See Moses 4.4. 4. On the other hand, the phrase weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, 
derived from, from the related New Testament phrase, this has long been in use in English, arguably because of its pleasant meter, and thus its presence in the Book of Moses and the Book of Mormon could have been the result of transla translating a phrase akin to weeping and gnashing of teeth into English. Parallel 60. Satan laughs and his angels rejoice. Now we'll turn to one of the verses that motivated the current study. Moses 7.26 gives us a chilling glimpse into Satan's power and attitude as seen by Enoch in a vision. Quote, and he beheld Satan, and he had a great chain in his hand, and it veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And he looked up and laughed, and his angels rejoiced. Unquote. In the Book of Mormon, following the grim destruction of many cities among the Nephites near the time of the crucifixion, the voice of the Lord exclaims, quote, Woe, woe, woe unto this people! Woe unto the inhabitants of the whole earth, except they shall repent! For the devil laugheth, and his angels rejoice, because of the slain of the fair sons and daughters of my people. Unquote. 3 Nephi 9.2 The pairing of verbs, this pairing of verbs, does not appear in the Bible. The existence of angels among Satan's forces is found in many other Book of Mormon verses. See 2 Nephi 9.9, 9, uh, chapter 9, verses 9 and 16, Jacob 3.11, Mosiah 26.27, and Moroni 7.17, but is also evident in the New Testament. See Matthew 25.41 and Revelation 12.9. Parallel 61. The Lord who weeps and grieves for lost souls. One of the most beloved and poignant passages in the book of Moses involves Enoch's surprise when, he's, when he sees in Moses 7, 28-40 that God weeps over the wicked. It is a brilliant and inspiring passage that is widely viewed as one of the most profound portions of our scriptures. The concept of the glory of God who weeps for sinful mortals may be reflected in, reflected in the allegory of the tame and wild olive trees taken from the brass plates. While the allegory is not from Moses, but rather from Zenos, the Lord's feelings for humanity show an intriguing relationship with the account about Enoch's experience. In the allegory in Jacob 5, the work of the Lord in redeeming humankind is related to a vineyard featuring olive trees. The Lord seeks to help his trees bring forth good fruit. Eight times in this chapter, the Lord states that, it, quote, it grieveth me, unquote, as he considers the future loss of the tree or trees he is nourishing. Jacob 5, chapter 5, verses 7, 11, 13, 32, 46 to 47, 51, and 66. The loss of human souls brings God grief. While the time of Zenos' ministry is not known, likely to be between 1600 and 600 BC, it is possible that his writings preserved on the brass plates may have been informed in part by knowledge of something that related to our Book of Moses or other related sources dealing with Enoch. Elements apparently common to Zenos in the Book of Moses may reflect a common genre or common concepts from an era well before, uh, well before uh, Nephi 1 or, or maybe because of chance as is always a possibility. The account of Noah in Genesis 6 also shows the Lord grieving over his creation, but not necessarily because man will suffer for their sins. Quote, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved, grieved him at his heart. Genesis 6, 5-6. In this account, uh, unquote, in this account, the Lord grieves that man had become wicked, but the text does not provide the insight of God's love for his rebellious children and his pain at the misery sin will bring the wicked. More relevant may be Luke 19.41, where Jesus weeps over, to, over Jerusalem because of its impending destruction. The New Testament and the Book of Moses both bear witness of the compassionate nature of God, and it is possible that related material in the Book of Mormon could simply be expressions of God's well-known compassion, though the repeated expression of God's grief for losses in Israel from Jacob 5 uh, resonates nicely with the weeping God of the Book of Moses who sorrows over the loss of human souls. 
Parallel 62. All things witness of the creation. As Enoch taught the gospel, he testified of the creation. Quote, and behold, all things have their likeness, and all things are created and made to bear record of me, both things which are temporal and things which are spiritual, things which are in the heavens above and things which are in the earth, and things which are in the earth, and things which are uh, under the earth, both above and beneath, all things bear record of me. Moses 6.63 The concept Enoch taught is similar to Alma 2's teaching when he corresponds to Korahor in Alma 30. Quote, but behold, I have all things as a testimony that these things are true, and ye have all things as a testimony unto you that they are true, and will ye deny them? Believest thou that these things are true? But Alma said unto him, Thou hast had signs enough. Will ye tempt your God? Will ye say, Show unto me a sign, when ye have, tempt, when ye have the testimony of all these thy brethren, and also all the holy prophets? The scriptures are laid before thee, yea, and all things denote there is a God. Yea, even the earth, and all things that, it, that is upon the face of it, yea, and its motion, yea, and also all the planets which move in their regular form, doth witness that there is a supreme creator. Alma uh, 30, verses 41 and 44. Uh, end quote, uh, a messianic discourse by Nephi 2 and Helaman 8 also invokes a related argument. Interestingly, he begins by citing the miracles, power, and prophecies of Moses, see Helaman 8, 11-16, and then he mentions the witness of other prophets from records likely on the brass plates, namely Abraham, Zenus, Zenic, Isaiah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, see verses 17-20. Then in verses 23 and 24, and again this is Helaman 8, he refers to the witness of the creation. Quote, And behold, he is God. And now, seeing you know these things, and cannot deny them, except ye shall, ye shall lie, therefore in this ye have sinned. For ye have rejected all these things, notwithstanding so many evidences which ye have received. Yea, ye have even received all things, both things in heaven and all things which are in the earth, as a witness that they are true. Unquote. Perhaps also related to 2 Nephi 11.4, which declares that, quote, all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him, unquote. The King James Bible uses all things many times, sometimes touching on the creation, such as Nehemiah 9.6, which speaks of God having made the heavens and, and, quote, the earth and all things that are therein, unquote, or John's declaration that, quote, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made, unquote, John 1.3. But nothing in the Bible seems to directly offer the particular and beautiful teaching of, quote, all things in the creation bearing witness of God. Parallel 63, power, wisdom, mercy, and justice. In describing the plan of salvation, one of the key phrases originally noted by Reynolds, several significant nouns, including power, wisdom, mercy, and justice, occur together in Moses 6, 61-62. Quote, Therefore it is given to abide in you, the record of heaven, the comforter, the peaceable things of immortal glory, the truth of all things, that which quickeneth all things, which maketh alive all things, that which knoweth all things, and hath all power according to wisdom, mercy, truth, justice, and judgment. For now, behold, I say unto you, this is the plan of salvation unto all men, through the blood of mine only begotten, who shall come in the meridian of time. Unquote. Several Book of Mormon verses use portions of this grouping that are not found together in the King James Bible. Second Nephi 2.12 speaks of, quote, the wisdom of God and his eternal purposes, and also the power and the mercy and the justice of God, unquote. Second Nephi, Second Nephi 11.5 says, quote, My soul delighteth in his grace and, and in his justice and power and mercy, in the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death, unquote. In Mosiah 5.15, King Benjamin exhorts his people to be, quote, steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works, unquote, so that they, quote, may have everlasting salvation and eternal life through the wisdom and power and justice and mercy of him who created all things in heaven and in earth, unquote. Note that King Benjamin also refers to God's creation of all things. 
a phrase that is used four times in Moses 6.61, right through the recitation, right before the recitation of power, wisdom, mercy, and justice. These Book of Mormon passages on salvation and their, and their similar vocabulary to Moses 6.61 to 62 suggest a possible relationship between the two books and further favor the Book of Moses as the tentative source since it offers the more complete, extensive language from which slightly different portions may have been drawn by Book of Mormon authors. Another relevant passage is Jacob 4.10, which tells us that God, quote, counseleth in wisdom and in mercy and in, and in justice and in great mercy over all his works, unquote. Uh, God's role in counseling is also a Book of Moses theme. See Moses 7.35, CF Moses 5.25 and 6.28. Parallel 64, commanding the earth and the power of the word. Jacob 4.10 in the previous section is part of a longer but still brief passage, Jacob 4.4-10, with several possible connections to the Book of Moses. Like the Book of Moses, this passage declares that the Nephites and earlier prophets, quote, had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming, unquote, Jacob 4.4. Verse 5 also refers to the law of Moses and to Abraham. And then verse 6 speaks of the of commanding mountains, trees, or the waves, after mentioning the writings of the prophets, quote, Wherefore we search the prophets, and we have many revelations in the spirit of prophecy. And having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope, and our faith becometh unshaken. Inasmuch that we can, that we truly can command in the name of Jesus, and the very trees obey us, or the mountains, or the waves of the sea. This thought, unquote, this thought resumes in verse 9. Quote, For behold, by the power of his word, man came upon the face of the earth, which earth was created by the power of his word. Therefore, if God being able to speak, and the world was, and to speak, and man was created, oh, then why not able to command the earth, or the workmanship of his hands upon it, according to his will and pleasure? Unquote. The workmanship of God's hands is a book of Moses' parallel discussed earlier in this study that strengthens the case that Joseph may have been influenced by something like, like the book of Moses in this discourse. This theme of commanding the earth through faith and power and the power of God's word may relate to the account of Enoch, one of the ancient writings Jacob may have searched. According to Moses 7.13, And so great was the faith of Enoch, that he led the people of God, and their enemies came to battle against them. And he spake the word of the Lord, and the earth trembled, and the mountains fled, even according to his command. And the rivers of water were turned out of their course, and the roar of lions was heard out of the, out of the wilderness. And all nations feared greatly, for so, so powerful was the word of Enoch, and so great was the power of language which God had given him. Unquote. Through faith, God's word can be spoken with miraculous power to command the earth, including mountains and rivers of water slash waves of the sea. Thus, the theme of commanding the earth in Jacob 4, verses 6 and 9, seems to have strong connections with the account of Enoch in Moses 7.13. It is also significant in both Jacob 4 and Moses 7 that the commanding of the earth is associated with the servants of God. Jacob continues with verse 10, which uses the book of Moses' concept of God's counsel plus the previously discussed elements of wisdom, justice, and mercy, again suggesting that Jacob had been influenced heavily by the by book of Moses-related material in the brass plates in this discourse. Commanding the earth can be viewed more broadly as an expression of the power of the word when spoken by servants of God. In Moses 7.13, it was God speaking, quote, the word of the Lord, unquote, that caused the earth to tremble, quote, and all nations feared greatly, so powerful was the word of Enoch, and so great was the power of the language which God had given him, unquote. The Book of Mormon cites several examples of, mo of mortals having divine power in the words they speak. Sometimes this is power to convert others, but other times more physically obvious miracles are, in are indicated. The first Book of Mormon example of a physical miracle performed by a prophet using the power of the word is, is cited in a discussion of Moses. This is 1 Nephi 17, verse 29. Yea, and ye also know that Moses, by his word, according to the power of God which was in him, smote the rock, and there came forth water. 
Jacob 4, 6-9, as mentioned previously, shows how powerful the word of God's servants was, and it reminds us that the, cre- that the creation came, by, quote, by the power of his, God's word, unquote. So naturally God, or implicitly God's servants, should be able to, quote, command the earth, unquote, according to God's will, verse 9. Further, Ether 12.30 mentions a mountain that was moved by faith of the brother by the faith of the brother of Jared in response to his verbal command, remove. Other forms of power in the word of uh, in the word of God from humans include the power to shake the wicked or to convert the penitent. Lehi, for example, explains that um, that. Oh, it explains that the Nephi one's alleged anger toward his wicked brothers was actually the sharpness of the power of the word of God. Uh, quote the sharpness of the power of the word of God, which was in him. Second Nephi one twenty six. Sharpness and power in the word are mentioned in the words of Mormon one seventeen, which states that King Benjamin and other quote holy men in the land did speak the word of God with power and with authority, and they did use much sharpness because of the stiff neckedness of the people. Unquote. Accounts of preaching and missionary efforts often mention the power of the words from humans, such as the sons of Messiah and the mission of the Lamanites. Quote, By the power of their words, many were brought before the altar of God to call in his name and confess their sins before him. Unquote. Alma 17.4 In contrast, the examples of the divinely powered words or, lang- of, or, or, or language are typically attributed to the Lord in the Bible. For example, speaking of Christ, Luke 4.32 says they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. Paul speaks of Christ in mentioning, quote, the word of his power, unquote, Hebrews 1.3. It is the word of God, not any mortal, that is quick, that is, quote, quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, unquote, in Hebrews 4.12. Moses, Elijah, and other prophets and apostles certainly perform miracles as directed by the Lord, with a relevant example being 1 Kings 17.16, quote, And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the crews of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. Unquote. Christ also tells his disciples that with sufficient faith they can speak and cause miracles, such as a move, such as moving a mountain. Matthew 17:20 and then 21, uh, Matthew 21, verse 21. But this is done without using the wording in the Book of Moses and the Book of Mormon. The Book of Moses and the Book of Mormon are more explicit in referring to great power of the word or the language of mortal men, though that power, as indicated in Moses 7:13 and 1 Kings 17:16, is of course given by the Lord. Parallel 65, Spreading Abominations and Works of Darkness Moses 5.52 speaks of the Lord cursing Lamech and his followers who had covenanted with Satan, stating that, quote, their works were abominations and began to spread among all the sons of men, unquote. This combination of abominations, works of darkness, and the, and the verb spread is also found in Helaman in 6.28, which declares that it was Satan, quote, which led on the people uh, which came from that tower into this land, which spread the works of darkness and abominations over all the face of the land until he dragged the people down to an entire destruction and to an everlasting hell. Unquote. Ether eight eighteen to twenty two employs related words in a similar context, but these words are spread are spread over five verses. Parallel sixty six the powers of heaven and heavenly ascent and descent. The term powers of heaven occurs in the New Testament, but only in the context of the troubles and fearsome signs of the last days. According to Matthew 24:29, the stars will fall from heaven and, quote, the powers of the heaven shall be shaken, unquote. Mark 13:25 says that the stars, says that, quote, the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken, unquote. And Luke 21:26 speaks of, quote, men's hearts failing them for fear and not for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken, unquote. 
In contrast, Moses 7.27 refers to the powers of heaven in the context of joyous interaction between heaven, earth, and Zion, with glorious angelic descent and ascent of the saints into the heavenly Zion. Quote, And Enoch beheld angels descending out of heaven, bearing testimony of the Father and, the, and, and Son, and the Holy Ghost fell on many, and they were caught up by the powers of heaven into Zion. Unquote. The Book of Mormon captures some of this context in describing the future New Jerusalem and presence of divine power in the midst of gathered Israel, with Christ in the midst of the saints on earth. Quote, and this is from 3 Nephi 20, uh, verse 22, And behold, this people will I establish in this land unto the fulfilling of the covenant which I made with your father Jacob, and it shall be a new Jerusalem. And the powers of heaven shall be in the midst of this people, yea, even, well, even I will be in the midst of you. 3 Nephi 20, 22, in the next chapter, similar language involving the powers of heaven and divine de descent is used in a prophecy indicating that the Gentiles who repent will be able to gather to assist gathered Israel in building the new Jerusalem. Quote, and they shall assist my people, the remnant of Jacob, and also as many of the house of Israel as shall come, that they may build a city which shall be called the new Jerusalem. And then shall they, they assist my people, that they may be gathered in, which are scattered upon all the face of the land, in unto the new Jerusalem. And then shall the powers of heaven come down among them, and I will also be in the midst. That's 3 Nephi 21, 23-25. A related prophecy of a glorious descent of the Lord and glorious ascent of saints involves the three Nephites with their access to the powers of heaven and the promise of future assumption into the kingdom of God. Quote, Therefore, more blessed are ye, for ye shall never taste of death, but ye shall live to behold all the doings of the Father unto the children of men, even until all things shall be fulfilled according to the will of the Father, when I shall come in my glory with the powers of heaven, and ye shall never endure the pains of death. But when I shall come in my glory, ye shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye from mortality to immortality, and then shall ye be blessed in the kingdom of my Father. And that's 3 Nephi 28, 7-8. The unshaken powers of heaven here bless humans and are associated with both heavenly descent and ascent. Zion is not explicitly present here, but, quote, the kingdom of my father, unquote, is given as the destination for the ascent. Parallel 67, salvation or damnation by, quote, a firm decree, unquote. In Moses 5, we learn that the Lord was working to teach the gospel to humanity from the days of Adam and Eve, calling upon all people to repent. Verse 15 outlines the choice of salvation or damnation given to humankind and the need for repentance. Quote, and as many as believed in the Son and repented of their sins should be saved, and as many as believed not and repented not should be damned. And the words went forth out of the mouth of God in a firm decree, wherefore they must be fulfilled. Unquote. Alma 9, 24-25, employs similar language in a similar context. Quote, For behold, the promises of the Lord are extended to the Lamanites, but they are not unto you if ye transgress. For hath not the Lord expressly promised and firmly decreed that if ye rebel against him, that ye shall be utterly destroyed from off the face of the earth? And now for this cause, that ye may not be destroyed, the Lord has sent his angel to visit many of his people, declaring unto them that they must, that they must go forth and cry mightily unto this people, saying, Repent ye, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Unquote. Alma 2 again uses similar language in a similar context in his famous Oh That I Were an Angel speech. Quote, I, had not, I had not ought to harrow up in my desires the firm decree of a just God, for I know that he granteth unto men according to their desires, whether it be unto life or, or whether it be unto death or unto life. Yea, know that he allotteth unto man, yea, he decreeth unto them decrees which are unalterable according to their wills, whether they be unto salvation or unto destruction. Alma 29, 4. Alma 2 uses both firm and unalterable to describe God's decrees. 
Later in Alma 41.7-8, Alma 2 uses unalterable instead of firm to describe God's decrees related to our salvation and damnation. A firm decree does occur in the King James Bible in Daniel 6.7, when leaders under King Darius set a trap to ensnare Daniel by convincing the king to issue a firm decree that, quote, Whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions, unquote. This is a decree of mortals, though, not a divine decree related to our eternal salvation or damnation. Parallel 68, Angels Bearing Testimony. Enoch's vision in Moses 7.27 teaches us about the role of angels. Quote, and Enoch beheld angels descending out of heaven, bearing testimony of the Father and Son, and the Holy Ghost fell on many, and they were caught up by the powers of heaven into Zion. In parallel 87, Moroni 7.29-31 is cited for its discussion of the role of angels. The role of declaring glad tidings in verse 31 is also associated with bearing testimony. Quote, and the and this is uh, this is verse thirty one of Moroni seven and the office of their ministry is to call men unto repentance and to fulfill and to do the work of the covenants of the Father which He hath made unto the children of men to prepare the way among the children of men by declaring the word of Christ unto the chosen vessels of the Lord that they may bear testimony of Him. The bearing of testimony mentioned is done by humans, but is the result of the work of angels. This language is not found in the King James Bible. Parallel 69, residue of men, slash the people, plus angels bearing testimony. In the book of Moses, the phrase residue of the people occurs three times in the same chapter, not far from the previously mentioned verse, Moses 7.27, with angels de uh, de bearing testimony. See parallel 68. Two occurrences are shortly before verse 27, namely verses 20 and 22, and one occurs immediately after in verse 28. Part of the famous, famous passage where Enoch sees God weeping for the wicked. See parallel 61. Quote, and it came to pass that the God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people, and he wept. And Enoch bore record of it, saying, How is it that, that the heavens weep and shed forth their tears as the rain upon the mountains? That's Moses 7.28. The word residue in the context of angels and the bearing of testimony also occurs, uh, also occurs in Moroni 7.31-32. Moroni 7.31, see parallel 68, describes the role of angels in helping mortals bear testimony of Christ. Then in verse 32, the result of this work is described, quote, And by so doing, the Lord God prepareth the way, that the residue of men may have faith in Christ, that the Holy Ghost may have place in their hearts, according to the power thereof. And after this manner bringeth to pass the Father the covenants which he hath made unto the children of men. Unquote. Parallel 70. Prepared from the foundation of the world. Moses 5, 57-58 explains that the Savior was, quote, prepared from before the foundation of the world, unquote. And here's the passage, the verse, uh, verses, quote, for they would not hearken unto his voice, nor believe on his, on his only begotten Son, even him whom he declared should come in the meridian of time, who was prepared from before the foundation of the world. And thus the gospel began to be preached, unquote. These sentences bring closure to the story of how men were first taught about the plan of redemption, the atonement of Christ, and the gospel that would teach the descendants of Adam and Eve that they could return to the presence of God by repenting, being baptized, and faithfully obeying his commandments. They refer back to the more expansive presentation of these teachings in verses 4 through 15. As the account of Adam's immediate descendants next unfolds, we read of Enoch, who undertakes to teach the same plan of salvation through the atonement of the Son of God, which was in effect from the foundation of the world and the gospel of repentance as the only way they can return to dwell with God. Moses 6.54, see verses 48 through 68. 
Matthew 25, 34 speaks, quote, of the kingdom of, quote, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, unquote, but not specifically of Christ or the atonement. Revelation 13, 8 speaks of, quote, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, unquote. The foundations of, foundation or foundations of the world uh, occurs in a total of 12 verses in the KGB Bible, but not with the specific language of Christ and his atonement being prepared from the foundation of the world. Meanwhile, Isaiah 40:21 has quote from the foundations of the earth, which is relevant or, uh, of the earth unquote, which is relevant but still different and lacking wor- uh, words related to prepared. But the Book of Mormon abounds in this language. Most of the Book of Mormon usages of this phrase refer explicitly to the atonement of Christ as prepared from the foundation of the world and the plan of salvation slash redemption and to the gospel that provides for the salvation of humankind. The way of salvation is, quote, prepared for all men from the foundation of the world, unquote, 1 Nephi 10.18. The atonement of Christ was, quote, prepared from the foundation of the world, unquote, in Messiah 4, 6-7. Redemption was, quote, prepared from the foundation of the world, unquote, in Messiah 15.19, 18.13, and Alma 12.30, as was, quote, the plan of redemption, unquote, in Alma 18.39 and 22.13. In Alma 42.26, God's, quote, great and eternal purposes, unquote, involving mercy and justice were quote, prepared from the foundation of the world, unquote, ultimately leading to, quote, the salvation and redemption of men and also their destruction and misery, unquote. In, in Ether 3.14, Christ declares that, that, quote, I am he which was prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people, unquote. The following excerpt from King Benjamin's teachings, Messiah 4, 6 through 8, is beautifully structured according to the, to the principles now known as Hebrew rhetoric and exemplifies the pattern used in another nine passages in another nine passages in the Book of Mormon that represent the plan of salvation, a pattern that includes the atonement of Jesus Christ and his gospel as the way to salvation for all peoples who were prepared or in place, quote, from the foundation of the world, unquote. As displayed here, Benjamin presents, uh, Benjamin presents a six-line chiasm beginning and ending with a reference to the atonement, quote, prepared from the foundation of the world, unquote, with a preface focused on, quote, the goodness of God, unquote, and a double conclusion stating the universality and uniqueness of the salvation it makes available in a pair of four-line chiasms. Okay, uh, now this, this begins the, the Book of Mormon quote, um, I say unto you that if ye have come to a knowledge of the goodness of God and his matchless power and his wisdom and his patience and his long suffering towards the children of men, um, now we come into clause A or part A of the chiasm, A, and also the atonement which hath been prepared from the foundation of the world, B, that thereby salvation might come to him, C, that should put his trust in the Lord, D, and should be diligent in keeping his commandments, now to C prime, and continue in the faith, even unto the end of his life, I mean the life of the mortal body. I say that B prime, this is the man that receiveth salvation, A prime, through the atonement, which was prepared from the foundation of the world. Uh, now we're into, um, after that A prime, it continues with um, little I, or I, um, for all mankind, or, or, or it could be considered a one, but it's like, it's I. For all mankind which ever was, ever since the fall of Adam, then I-I, Roman numerals, or which is, I-I prime, or which ever shall be, now to I prime, even unto the end of the world, and now we're back to A. And this is the means whereby salvation cometh. And now B, 
And there is none other salvation save this which hath been spoken of, and then B prime, neither is there any conditions whereby man can be saved, then back to A prime, except the conditions which I have told you. That's Mosiah 4, 6 through 8. Alma 13.3 speaks of priesthood holders being, quote, called and prepared from the foundation of the world, unquote, with a holy calling that was, quote, prepared with and according to a preparatory redemption for such, unquote. That result is made possible only by the preparation of Christ, quote, this holy calling being prepared from the foundation of the world for such as would not harden their hearts, being in and through the atonement of the only begotten Son, which was prepared, unquote, Alma 13.5. Then Alma 13.7 speaks of the order of his Son, which order was from the foundation of the world, or in other words, being without beginning of days or end of years, being prepared from eternity to all eternity, according to his foreknowledge of all things. Unquote. Since several different gospel-related, since several different gospel-related things, such as Christ Himself, redemption or salvation, and priesthood callings, are quote prepared from the foundation of the world in the Book of Mormon, one could argue that the intertextuality explored here may simply be a cultural linguistic artifact in which Joseph favored an expression that means little more than from the beginning or from time immemorial. However, the different things connected with, with, quote, prepared from the foundation of the world, unquote, remain based in the Savior and his work of atonement. Even priesthood callings, which Alma 13.5 indicates were, quote, in and through the atonement of the only begotten Son, which was prepared, unquote, making it logical that the basket of Book of Mormon concepts said to be prepared from the foundation of the world could plausibly be related to the teachings of Moses 5.57-58. Parallel 71, gathering from the four quarters of the earth. Moses 7.62 has a prophecy given to Enoch about the future gathering of the elect. Quote, And righteousness will I send down out of heaven, and truth will I send forth out of the earth, to bear testimony of mine only begotten, his resurrection from the dead, yea, and also the resurrection of all men. And righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood, to gather out mine elect from the four quarters of the earth unto a place which I shall prepare. A, and holy city, that my people may gird up their loins and be looking forth for the time of my coming. For there shall be my tabernacle, and it shall be called Zion, a new Jerusalem. This verse resonates in several previously discussed ways, or un, end, unquote. Uh, now, this verse resonates with several previously discussed ways with the Book of Mormon, and also has affinity to the Book of Mormon in its use of bare testimony. The phrase bear testimony, Second Nephi 27.13 and Moroni 7.31, and the reference to future revelation, scripture, and the restoration, implied in, quote, righteousness out of heaven and truth out of the earth, unquote. See Moroni 8.16 and 26. Further, the phrase, quote, gather out mine elect from the four quarters of the earth, unquote, has strong parallels to the Book of Mormon. The first occurrence of related language is attributed to the brass plates, but from the prophet Zenos. Quote, All the people who are of the house of Israel will I gather in, saith the Lord, according to the words of the prophet Zenos, from the four quarters of the earth. Unquote. First Nephi 19.16. Several other examples are found in the Book of Mormon. Quote, he gathereth his children from the four quarters of the earth. Unquote. First Nephi 22.25. He will gather, quote, gather in from the four quarters of the earth all the remnant of the seed of Jacob. Third Nephi 5.24. Uh, unquote, uh, quote, then shall they be gathered in from the four quarters of the earth unto their own lands, unquote. Third Nephi 5.26, and, quote, then will I gather them in from the four quarters of the earth, unquote. Third Nephi 16.5. Finally, immediately following a prophecy about the future New Jerusalem in Ether 13.10, Moroni turns to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of old, and the gathering from the four quarters of the earth. Quote, 
And then cometh also the Jerusalem of old, and the inhabitants thereof. Blessed are they, for they shall be they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And they are they who were scattered, and gathered in from the four quarters of the earth, and from the north countries, and are partakers of the fulfilling of the covenant which God made with their father Abraham. Ether 13.11 In the King James Bible, uh, quote, the four quarters of the earth, unquote, is not a common term, occurring only in Revelation 28 regarding the scope of Satan's final deceptions before the battle of Gog and Magog. Isaiah 11.12, however, speaks of the gathering of Israel from the, four cor- from the, quote, four corners, unquote, of the earth, probably the closest KGV relationship to the gathering from the four quarters of the earth in Moses 7.62. Parallel 72. Counsel plus ye yourselves. Moses 6.43 has the phrase, Why counsel ye yourselves, and deny the God of heaven? Uh, Ye yourself occurs ten times in the Bible and eight times in the Book of Mormon, but in Jacob 4.10, it also occurs with three three instances of counsel. Quote, Wherefore, brethren, seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. For behold, ye yourselves know that he counseleth in wisdom and in justice and in great mercy over all his works. Unquote. The inclusion of wisdom, justice, and mercy in other previously discussed collocation from the book of Moses would seem to increase the probability that Jacob is being influenced by something related to the book of Moses in this passage. Parallel 73, fearful looking for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God upon them. In the King James Bible, fiery indignation occurs in Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. For we sin, quote, for we sin willfully after that we have received for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a fearful looking that for of uh, looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversary. The book of Moses uses this language as well, and also uses a phrase similar to Paul's fearful looking. Quote, and it came to pass that Enoch continued his speech, saying, Behold, our father Adam taught these things, and many have believed and become the sons of God, and many have believed not and have perished in their sins, and are looking forth with fear and torment for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God to be poured out upon them. Moses 7.1 uh, CF, uh, Compare the fire of mine indignation in Moses 7.34 Hebrews seems to be a plausible source for some of the language of this passage. However, this passage's relationship to Alma 40.14 may raise other possibilities. That verse is shown here with the preceding verse, which contains previously discussed uh, language also related to Book of Moses material. Okay, and here's Alma 40.13-14. Uh, then it shall come to pass that the spirits of the wicked, yea, which are evil, for behold, they have no part nor portion of the Spirit of the Lord. For behold, they chose evil works rather than good. Therefore, the spirit of the devil did enter into them and take possession of their house, and they shall be cast into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, and this because of their own iniquity, being led captive by the will of the devil. Now this is the state of the souls of the wicked, yea, in darkness, in the state of, the, of an awful, fearful looking for of the indignation, of the fiery indignation of the wrath of God upon them. And thus they remain in this state, as well as the righteous in paradise, until the time of their resurrection. The common elements of fearful looking, slash, looking forth in fear, and the fiery indignation of the wrath of God upon them, would seem to make the relationship of wording in Moses 7.1, to the Book of Mormon stronger than it is to Hebrews 10.27. Could a common ancient source also have influenced Paul's choice of words? 
The possibility of Alma 2 drawing on something related to the Book of Moses is amplified by the use of other shared concepts, such as weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, see parallel 59, and also, quote, being led captive by the will of the devil, unquote, see parallel 9. The concept of the misery that Satan brings, see parallel 44, also occurs in the following verse, Alma 40:15. Parallel 74, numerous upon the face of the land. Quote, the children of men were numerous upon all the face of the land, unquote, in, Mo- in Moses 6.15. This is a verse that we previously identified as a possible source of influence in the Book of Mormon for the concept of Satan raging in the hearts of men. Another possible relationship to this verse may be seen in Jeremiah 1.6, which speaks of the numerous Lamanites who were, quote, scattered upon much of the face of the land, unquote, uh, compared Jeremiah 1.8. Mormon 1.7 says, the whole face, quote, the whole face of the, land, of the land had become covered with buildings, and the people were as numerous almost as it were the sand of the sea, uh, unquote. Likewise, Messiah 27.6 tells us that, quote, the people began to be very numerous and began to scatter abroad upon the face of the earth, unquote. Ether 7.11 tells us how the Jaredite king Shul, quote, did spread his kingdom upon all the face of the land, for the people had become exceedingly numerous, unquote. On slash upon all the face of the land, also occurs in Alma 16.16, Helaman 11.32, and, and Helaman 16.22-23. Verse 23 uses another Book of Mormon concept in the phrase, Satan did get great hold upon the hearts of the people, and, uh, as discussed in Parallel 45. 1 Nephi 22.3, a verse already noted by Reynolds for a possible relationship to the Book of Moses based on its discussion of, quote, things both temporal and spiritual, unquote, as also the phrase, quote, scattered upon all the face of the earth, unquote, as do 1 Nephi 10.12 and 1339, and several of the verses also speak of all the face of the earth, or all the face of the land. Numerous and face do not occur together in any verses of the King James Bible. On the other hand, the idea of people being numerous is simple and common, as is the concept of things being upon the face of the earth. So it is possible that numerous upon the face of the land is simply Joseph's translation of content expressing something about population density. Nevertheless, the precise language could be, uh, used could also point to a connection between the Book of Mormon and the breastplates. The King James Bible does not have face of the land, but does have scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth in Genesis 11.4, in the context of the story of the scattering at the time of the Tower of Babel. Uh, Compare Ezekiel 34.6. This is similar to many verses in the Book of Mormon, with scattered, the word scattered, combined with the phrase upon the face of the earth slash land. The face of the, uh, the, quote, the face of the earth, unquote, not land, occurs in several other KGB verses, see Exodus 33.16, Numbers 11.31, 12.3, Deuteronomy 7.6, Isaiah 23.17, Jeremiah 8.2, and 16.4, 25.26, Ezekiel 34.6, 38.20, Amos 5.8, and uh, also, also verse 8, and then Acts 17.26. Verses that have similar wording but use whole earth include Daniel 8.5, Zechariah 5.3, and Luke 21.35. Also illustrating the use of, quote, the land, unquote, in the context of rising population, is Exodus 1.7, quote, And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them, unquote. On the other hand, be numerous upon the face of the land is close semantically to, quote, multiply on the face of the earth, unquote, in Genesis 6.1. The intertextual connection between Moses and the Book of Mormon here could merely be on the level of the English wording and not necessarily clearly related in the original languages. 
Indeed, the concept of numerous people in or on the face of the land is rather mundane, and the wording could be the result of Joseph Smith translating instances of a common concept in similar ways. However, as noted previously, in light of the growing evidence of tight translation for the Book of Mormon, we will entertain the hypothesis of significant tight control. If one accepts the suggestion that the specific language of numerous occurring with face or 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 of face of uh, of the land in the Book of Mormon could derive from Book of Moses influence, then in light of multiple parallels Reynolds has found from Moses 6:15 and the additional ones discussed herein, it would seem that Moses 6:15 is composed almost entirely of phrases that appear to have influenced the Book of Mormon. Here is Moses 6:15, where terms noted in Reynolds' original work are in bold. Uh, and, and further discoveries reported herein are in italics. It could be that this verse or something similar was a well-known influential passage on the brass plates. Such a cluster of Book of Mormon terms brought together into one verse may suggest that the Book of Moses verse was a source mined in multiple contexts in the Book of Mormon, rather than disparate Book of Mormon phrases being suddenly brought together in high density. Of itself, the evidence that, quote, numerous upon all the face of the land, unquote, has influenced the Book of Mormon should be considered weak, given the relatively non-unique simplicity of the phrases involved. But in light of the additional parallels apparent for other phrases in Moses 6.15, there may be a reasonable case that this verse and its wording has had significant impact on Book of Mormon writers, according to the probability that apparent relationships to numerous upon all the face of the land, of the land may not be accidental, or adding to the probability, not according to Parallel 75, Record plus Baptism of Fire and the Holy Ghost. Moses 6.66 describes Adam's baptism and his receipt of the Holy Ghost, or his baptism by fire, and then makes an intriguing statement about the record of the Father and the Son. Quote, And he heard a voice out of heaven, saying, Thou art baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost. This is the record of the Father and the Son from henceforth and forever. Unquote. Baptism with fire and the Holy Ghost also occurs with record, the word record, in 3 Nephi 11.35, as the Lord teaches the Nephites about baptism. Quote, Verily, verily, I say unto you that this is my doctrine, and I bear record of it from the Father, and whoso believeth in me believeth in the Father also. And unto him will the Father bear record of me, and he will, for he will visit him with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Unquote. 3 Nephi 19.14 also seems relevant. Quote, and behold, they were encircled about as if it were by fire, and it came down from heaven, and the multitude did witness, did witness it and do bear record. And angels did come down out of heaven and did minister unto them. Unquote. Here the fire that encircles the crowd is similar to the fire that encircled a group of Lamanites in a miraculous prison scene in Helaman 5, which may be what the Lord later explains as a baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost. See 3 Nephi 9.20. An additional common, common element in 3 Nephi 19.14 is the fire, quote, coming down from, uh, is the fire coming, quote, down from heaven, unquote, somewhat parallel to the, quote, voice out of heaven, unquote, from Moses 6.66. The King James Bible lacks this parallel, though, of course, uh, though, of course, though, of course, baptism by fire and the Holy Ghost is mentioned in the Gospels. See Matthew 3.11 and Luke 3.16. Parallel 76 caught up slash away into an exceedingly high mountain. Our list of simple parallels concludes with a look at the very beginning of the book of Moses, quote, at a time when Moses was caught up into an exceedingly high mountain, unquote, and had an encounter with the Lord, Moses 1.1. Similar language is used in Nephi 1's account to describe his extensive vision relative to Lehi's dream in the tree of life, quote, for it came to pass, after I had desired to know the things that my father had seen, and believing that, that the Lord was able to make them known unto me, wherefore, as I sat pondering in my heart, I was caught away, 
in the, in the spirit of the Lord, yea, into an exceeding high mountain, a mountain which I had never before seen, and never and upon which I never before set my foot. First <clears throat> Nephi eleven one. In Matthew four eight, Satan taketh Christ into quote into an exceeding high mountain unquote and tempts him. But the King James Bible does not speak of anyone being caught up or away into a mountain or mount. Parallels 77 to 86, compound parallels. In several cases shown at the end of Table 3, there are compounded elements in which multiple elements in the Book of Moses are grouped together. For example, the first such compound parallel, uh, parallel number 77, is in 1 Nephi 14.7. This verse contains at least three of the parallels from Reynolds' original list. One, the description of Satan. Two, the concept of eternal life in Moses 1.39, though found frequently in the New Testament and the Book of Mormon, it is not used in the Old Testament. And three, the combination of temporal and spiritual. Moses 6.63, compare 1 Nephi 15.32 uh, and, and also 22.3, Mosiah 2.41, Alma 7.23, and also Alma 12.16 and 37.43. Uh, here is a here is the quote from First Nephi fourteen seven, for the time cometh, saith the Lamb of God, that I will work a great and a marvelous work among the children of men, a work which shall be everlasting, either on the one hand or the, on the other, either to the convincing of them unto peace and life eternal, or unto the deliverance of them to the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds, uh, unto their being brought down into captivity and also destruction both temporally and spiritually according to the captivity of the devil, of which I have spoken. That's first Nephi fourteen seven. Recall that the key elements of Moses recall the key elements of Moses four four. Quote, and he became Satan, yea, even the devil, the father of all lies, to deceive unto blind men and to lead them captive at his will, even as many as would not hearken unto my voice. And unquote. In first Nephi fourteen seven, the devil and related concepts of deception, um, for example, hardness of hearts, perhaps as treated previously in discussing Satan's dominion, blindness and being delivered from captivity versus being brought into captivity are included, as are the concept of life eternal and the pairing of temporally and spiritually, all with connections to the Book of Moses. Reynolds wrote that the first occurrence of eternal life, a Book of Moses concept not found in the Old Testament, was in 2 Nephi 2.27. Life eternal is essentially equivalent. This clustering of concepts in the writings of Nephi 1 is also characteristic of his approach to Isaiah, where he pulls together verses from different portions of the text to bring out new meaning. While Isaiah 29.14, with its wording, marvelous uh, with its wording, marvelous work among this people, is tied to the opening phrases of 1 Nephi 14.7, references to work and life eternal in 1 Nephi 14.7 could be built on the concepts of in Moses 1.39, my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. In addition to the other Book of Mormon concepts noted in this passage, the, quote, hardness of their hearts and blindness of their minds, unquote, might have some relationship. Satan's blinding of men has been noted in Moses 4.4, and Satan's influence on the hearts of men in Moses 6.15 was discussed previously in this study. Moses 6.27 has the Lord asking Enoch to tell the people that their hearts have waxed hard, or, quote, that their hearts have waxed hard, unquote, and, quote, their eyes cannot see afar off, unquote, a phrase suggestive of blindness. The pairing of hardness of their hearts and blindness, the pairing of, quote, hardness of their hearts and blindness of their minds, unquote, in First Nephi 14.7, may be a formulaic construction based on how Nephi 1 and others use, use it elsewhere. See First Nephi 7.8 and 13.27, 
Uh, compare Moses 11.29, Jerem 1.3, Alma 13.4, 48.3, 3.21, 1-2, 7.16, Ether 4.15, and 15.19. However, related terms occur in John 12.40. He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, which is quoting Isaiah 6.10, though the King James Version of Isaiah 6.10 has make the heart of this people fat instead of hard. Similar observations can be made for the remaining compound groupings in parallels 78 to 85. The final compound, parallel, 80, uh, parallel uh, 86, merits more detailed explanation. Parallel 86, Enoch and Samuel the Lamanite. One further potential compound parallel to consider involves Samuel the Lamanite and Enoch. This, like some other parallels that could be proposed, involves themes and concepts in addition to a few parallels in language. In Moses 6.6, Enoch is moved by the Spirit while journeying and is commanded to preach repentance, see verses 26 to 30. Indeed, a voice from heaven, the voice of the Lord, calls him to prophesy and preach repentance, verse 27, with the promise that, quote, no man shall pierce thee, verse 32. For he was preaching to a violent people, guilty of devising murder and other sins, see verse 28. He is told to, quote, open thy mouth and it shall be filled and I will give thee utterance. And unquote, verse 32. Again, it's Moses 6. Enoch went forth to fulfill this commission, crying, quote, with a loud voice, unquote, while, quote, standing upon the hills and the high places, unquote, as he testified against the people, quote, and all men were offended because of him, unquote, verse 37. Though they were angry, he was protected, for no, for, quote, no man laid hands on him, unquote, out of fear, verse 39. A similar pattern occurs in the Book of Mormon with Samuel the Lamanite in Helaman 13. Samuel had come among the Nephites, but had been rejected, and he was about to return to his own land, verse 2. His homeward, homeward journey was curtailed when, quote, the voice of the Lord came unto him that he should return again and prophesy unto the people whatsoever thing should come into his heart, unquote, verse 3. Because he was not allowed to enter the city, he, quote, got upon the wall thereof and stretched forth his hand and cried with a loud voice and prophesied unto the people whatsoever things the Lord put into his heart, unquote, verse 4. His preaching and prophesying continue in Alma 14 and 15, and then in Helaman 16:2 we learn that the people were angry at him and sought to kill him. Quote, they cast stones at him upon the wall, and also many shot arrows at him as he stood upon the wall. But the Spirit of the Lord was with him, insomuch that they could not hit him with their stones, neither with their arrows. Unquote. In other words, no man could pierce him with arrows as he preached and prophesied while standing upon a high place. Common elements in these accounts include the prophet experiencing the following. Here's a bullet, some bullet points. Uh, first one, receiving a prophetic charge while journeying or about to journey, hearing the voice of the Lord, being called both to preach and prophesy to a wicked people, being promised that the Lord would give him utterance, standing upon high places while preaching with a loud voice to the people, offending the crowd and stirring them to anger, but being protected from piercing by the power of God. The parallel of standing upon high places and fulfilling a, in fulfilling a prophetic commission may also be considered in light of Jeffrey M. Bradshaw's scriptural exploration of what it means to, quote, stand in holy places, unquote. And there's a footnote giving that reference, of course. There are, th there are other candidates for compound parallels that can be proposed. Those listed here are given as examples for consideration. Parallels 87 to 97, weaker parallels to consider. Several weaker parallels may also be considered. These are typically considered weaker because the parallels may involve wording that could simply reflect Joseph's preferences rather than an underlying connection in the original languages, or may involve minor mundane details, though the evidence for tight transition in the Book of Mormon may enhance the plausibility of some of these weaker proposed parallels. 
Some are considered weaker because, because similar but not exact biblical parallels may exist. Parallel 87, declared by angels. Here we explore the particular wording associated with angels that declare the gospel. Here we must particularly consider the warning expressed in the introduction about the possibility of parallels relying on Joseph's word choice in some cases. The act of declaring is similar to many other verbs expressing what is spoken, told, or said, and thus can be translated in a variety of ways. Moses 5.58 describes how the Lord worked to preach the gospel among the children of of Adam. Uh, And thus the gospel began to be preached from the beginning, being declared by holy angels, sent forth from the presence of God, and by his own voice, and and by the gift of the Holy Ghost. For angels to declare gospel news may seem like a natural expression, but this language is not found in the King James Bible. Declare and the related declaration occur many times, 55 times and 4 times respectively, but apparently not from the mouth of angels. The closest parallel may be Revelation 10.7, which mentions an angel and also mentions what God has declared to his prophets. In the Book of Mormon, however, the verb declare is frequently used to describe what angels do. In Mosiah 3.2-4, an angel awakes King Benjamin and tells him that he has come to, de- quote, he, the quote, he has, quote, come to declare glad tidings of great joy, unquote, regarding the birth of Christ, verse 3, using declare twice more in verse 4. According to Alma 9.25, quote, The Lord hath sent his angel to visit many of his people, declaring unto them, unquote, that they must preach repentance and preparing for the coming of Christ. In Alma 13.21-25, declare is used five times to describe angels proclaiming the gospel and the coming of Christ. Quote, and now it came to pass that when Alma had said these words unto them, he stretched forth his hand unto them and cried with a mighty voice, saying, Now is the time to repent, for the day of salvation draweth nigh. Yea, in the voice of the Lord, by the mouth of angels, hath doth declare it unto all nations. Yea, doth declare it, that they may have glad tidings of great joy. Yea, and he doth sound, sound these glad tidings among all his people, yea, even to them that are scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. Wherefore they have come unto us. And they are made known unto us in plain terms, that we may understand that we cannot err, and this because of our, of our being wanderers in a strange land. Therefore we are thus highly favored, for we have these glad tidings declared unto us in all parts of the, our vineyard. For behold, angels are declaring it unto many at this time in our land, and this is the purpose and this, and this is for the purpose of preparing the hearts of the children of men, for to receive his word at the time of his coming in his glory. And now we only wait to hear the joyful news, declared unto us by the mouth of angels of his coming, for the time cometh, we know not how soon. Would to God that it might be in my day, but let it be sooner or later, in it I will rejoice. In so in recounting his dramatic conversion story, Alma too tells his son Shiblon that the Lord, quote, sent his angel to declare unto me, unquote, that he must stop his efforts to destroy the faith of God's people, Alma 38.7. To his son Coriantan, he asked, quote, is it not as easy at this time for the Lord to send his angel to declare these glad tidings unto us as unto our children or as after, or, or as after the time of his coming? Alma 39.19. In Helaman 5.11, Helaman 3's words to his sons, Nephi 2 and Lehi 2, are quoted, quote, He hath sent his angels to declare the glad tidings of the conditions of repentance, which bringeth unto the power of the, rede- of the Redeemer, unto the salvation of their souls, end quote. Angels also declare glad tidings in Helaman 13.7 and 16.14. Moroni, in discussing the role and ministry of angels in Moroni 7.29-31, lists one role in verse 31 as, quote, declaring the word of Christ unto the chosen vessels of the Lord, unquote. Not surprisingly, others before Joseph Smith use the verb declare to describe what angels may do. 
For example, the cleric George, Whit, uh, George Whitefield, 1714 to 1770, once opined that, quote, perhaps part of our entertainment in heaven will be to hear the angels declare how many millions of times they have assisted and helped us, uh, and, unquote. But the concept of angels declaring the gospel message centuries or millennia before the coming of Christ is unlikely to be found in Joseph Smith's environment, but it does occur with similar language in both the Book of Moses and the Book of Mormon. But again, given the relatively non-unique nature of declaring itself, this parallel may be relatively weak. Parallel 88, for mine own purpose. The phrase, for mine own purpose, occurs twice in the Book of Moses. Speaking of the scope of God's creation, the Lord tells Moses, for my, quote, for my own purpose have I made, made these things, unquote, in Moses 131. And then he uses that phrase again in Moses 133, which also contains the Book of Mormon parallel involving, quote, mine only begotten son, unquote, see parallel 20. Uh, here's the quote from Moses 133. And worlds without number have I created, and I also created them, quote, from, or, for mine own purpose. And by the son I created them, which is mine only begotten, unquote. The word purpose occurs regularly in the Bible, and own purpose occurs in 2 Timothy uh, 1, verse 9. Quote, according to his own purpose and grace, unquote. Ephesians 1, 1, or 1, 11 has, quote, according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, unquote. However, quote, mine own purpose, quote, does not occur. But the entire phrase, quote, for mine own purpose, unquote, occurs three times in Jacob 5. Quote, Nevertheless, I know that the, word, that the roots are good, and for mine own purpose have I preserved them, and because of their much strength, they, they have hitherto brought forth from the, from the wild branches good fruit. Jacob 5.36. Uh, here's another one. And this will I do, that the tree may not perish, that perhaps I may preserve unto myself the roots thereof for mine own purpose. Jacob 5.53. And then... Uh, another one, and behold, the roots of the natural branches of the tree, which I have, which I planted whithersoever I would, are yet alive. Wherefore, that I may preserve them also for mine own purpose, I will take of the branches of this tree, and I will graft them in unto them. Jacob 5:54. Uh, unquote for all that all those passages. As mentioned earlier, Jacob 5 quotes from a brass plate from from a brass plate's account by a prophet named Zenos. Two other parallels to verses in Jacob 5 were previously discussed, see parallels 58 and 61. As previously noted, common elements from Zenos and a text related to the Book of Moses could be due to Zenos having access to something like the Book of Moses or due to both texts being influenced by earlier texts or cultural elements. Further, since mine own purpose is not a unique concept but a common one that can be expressed in many ways, it could be an artifact or translation of tra uh, an artifact of translation rather than an indication of ancient connections in the original text, although the evidence for tight translation of at least the Book of Mormon may be helpful in evaluating this proposed parallel. Parallel 89, Fulfilling Covenants. Moses 8.2 speaks of covenants being fulfilled, quote, And it came to pass that Methuselah, the son of Enoch, was not taken, that the covenants of the Lord might be fulfilled which he made to Enoch, for he truly covenanted, covenanted with Enoch that Noah should be the, uh, of the fruit of his loins. End quote. Unquote. In the King James Bible, oaths, scriptures, statutes, judgments, counsel, petitions, desires, lust, ministries, righteousness, the law, one's will, periods of time, and the word of the Lord can be fulfilled. But that verb is apparently not associated with the word covenants. However, fulfilled is used to describe the Lord's keeping of what he promised, 
David, 2 Chronicles 6.15, 1 Kings 8.24. But in the Book of Mormon, we frequently find an express association of covenant or covenants with fulfill. Examples include preparing the way for the fulfilling of, of his, the Father's covenants, First uh, Nephi 14.7, quote, the covenant um, made with Abraham, which should be fulfilled in latter days, uh, and quote, First Nephi 15.18, Quote, the Lord God will fulfill his covenants, unquote. Second Nephi 6.12, quote, that my covenants may be fulfilled, which I have made unto the children of men, unquote. Second Nephi 10.15, and many more. See third Nephi 5.25, 10.7, 15.8, 20.12, 22, 27, um, and verse 46, um, third, third Nephi 21.4, and 7, and also 29.1 and 9, Mormon 5.14, Ether 13.11, and Moroni 7.31. The Book of Mormon clearly prefers the verb fulfill in its covenant-rich language. Parallel 90, peaceable things of immortal glory slash heaven. The King James Bible uses the word peaceable or peaceably a number of times, but not with the direct connotations to eternal life found in Moses 6. In verse 59, we read of being born again and enjoying eternal, quote, eternal life in the world to come, even immortal glory. And then verse, unquote, and then verse 61 refers to, quote, the peaceable things of immortal glory, unquote. A related application of the word peaceable is found in Moroni 7.3. Wherefore I speak unto you that are of the church, that are the peaceable followers of Christ, and have obtained a sufficient hope by which ye can enter into the rest of the Lord, from this time henceforth, until ye shall rest with him in heaven, unquote. Here the followers of Christ are peaceable and able to, quote, enter into the rest of the Lord, unquote, in heaven, which, of course, is eternal life and immortal glory. Perhaps this represents a connection to the book of Moses. Parallel 91, for the space of many hours. Moses 1.10 describes the time that Moses was overcome after his vision as lasting, quote, for the space of many hours, unquote. The same phrase of six words is found three times in the Book of Mormon, in 1 Nephi 8.8, and Helaman 14, 21, and 26, the New Testament has, quote, the space of, plus a specific number of hours, uh, Acts 5, 7, and 19:34, Revelation 8, 1, but lacks the initial for and the use of many in this phrase. These differences are minor, and the phrase is not doctrinally, doctrinally meaningful, but is still consistent with the possible relationship with the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses. Parallel 92, joy through the fall of man. A passage that may have connections to the writings of first of Nephi 1 is Moses 5.10. Quote, And in that day Adam blessed God and was filled and began to prophesy concerning all the families of the earth, saying, Blessed be the name of God, for because of my transgression my eyes are open, and in this life I shall have joy, and again in the flesh I shall see God. Unquote. The potential for joy that comes because of the fall is reflected in Second Nephi 2.25. Uh, Second Nephi 2.22-25. Quote, and now behold, if Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen, but he would have remained in the Garden of Eden, and all things which were created must have remained in the same state in which they were, after they were created, and thus they must have remained forever and had no end, and they would have had no children, wherefore they would have remained in the state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. But behold, all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. Unquote. The phrase, in the flesh I shall see God, is also similar to 2 Nephi 9.4, which says, quote, in our bodies we shall see God, unquote. A related KGB phrase is in Job 19.26, quote, in my flesh shall I see God, unquote. 
Parallel 93, dwell in safety forever. In Moses 7.20, Enoch declares, quote, Surely Zion shall dwell in safety forever, unquote. This is similar to dwell safely forever in 2 Nephi 1.9, mentioned shortly before references to shaking off the chains of Satan, another book of Moses' element. Parallel 94, visions on the mount plus the word look. Some language in Moses 7 may be employed in, in uh, Nephi 1's description of his visions. Moses 7 has the following. This is verses 3 to 4 of Moses 7. And it came to pass that I turned and went up on the mount. And as I stood upon the mount, I beheld the heavens open, and I was clothed upon with glory. And I saw the Lord, and, stood before, he, and he stood before my face. And he talked with me, even as a man talketh one with another, face to face. And he said unto me, Look, and I, and I will... I will show unto thee the world for the space of many generations, unquote. In 1 Nephi 18.3, we read that, that Nephi 1 did go, uh, quote, did go into the mount oft, unquote, while at Bountiful and saw great things. In his earlier Tree of Life vision, in 1 Nephi 11.1, Nephi 1 is cut away into a high mountain, and the Spirit shows him a vision. An angel later takes his place. Uh, an, an angel later takes his place. Both the Spirit and the angel frequently used the command, look. For example, in 1 Nephi 11, 8, quote, the Spirit said unto me, look, unquote. The Bible, of course, also provides the concept of prophets or Christ going to a mountain to commune with God, such as Moses going to Mount Sinai in Exodus, Elijah going to Mount Sinai in 1 Kings 19, and Christ going to the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Parallel, 90, parallel 95, pierced by God's eye. God's ability to pierce with his eye is another apparent commonality. Jacob 2.15 says, Oh, that he would show you that he can pierce you, and with one glance of his eye he can smite you to the dust. Unquote. This is similar to Moses 7.36, which says, quote, Wherefore I can stretch forth my hands, and behold all the creations which I have made, and my eye, mine eye can pierce them also. Unquote. The word pierce occurs a few times in the Bible, but not in this context. Parallel 96 combinations with full of grace and truth. The phrase, quote, full of grace and truth, unquote, in Moses 7:11, while found prominently in John 1, is also found in 2 Nephi 2, 6, among other verses, immediately after a verse with multiple connections to the book of Moses. Verse 5, uh, that would be in 2 Nephi 2, uh, refers to the misery of wickedness. See Moses 7, 37 and 41. The contrast of temporal versus spiritual things, see Moses 6.63, and perishing in sin, Moses 7.1. It could be that an ancient version of the book of Moses had the concept of the Messiah being full of grace and truth, which theoretically could have directly, directly or indirectly influenced John. Parallel 97, the Lord preserving his people, particularly during final tribulations. Moses 7.61 warns of great tribulations to come upon the earth in the last days, but also states that the Lord will preserve his people, quote, And the day shall come that the earth shall rest, but before that day the heaven shall be darkened, and a veil of darkness shall cover the earth, and the heavens shall shake, and also the earth, and great tribulation shall be among the children of men, but my people will I preserve, end quote. A similar scenario with related, related language is given in a prophecy of Nephi 1. Quote, For the time soon cometh that the fullness of the wrath of God shall be poured out upon all the children of men, for he will not suffer that the wicked shall destroy the righteous. Wherefore he shall preserve the righteous by his power, even if it so be that the fullness of his wrath must come, and the righteous be preserved even unto the destruction of their enemies by fire. Wherefore the righteous need not fear, for thus saith the prophet, They shall be saved, even if it so be as by fire. 
Behold, my brethren, I say unto you, that these things must shortly come, yea, even blood and fire and vapor of smoke must come, and it must needs be upon the face of the earth, and it cometh unto men according to the flesh, if it so be that they will harden their hearts against the Holy One of Israel. Preserve is a key verb used 20 times in Jacob 5, describing the Lord's efforts to preserve the house of Israel and gather his people, and is used in each of the three verses in Jacob 5 that also use the parallel term, for mine own purpose, see parallel 88. In the latter verses of that of the of the chapter, preserve is used in the context of the last days and the destruction of the wicked, particularly in verse seventy seven. Quote And when the time cometh that evil fruit shall shall again come into my vineyard, then will I cause the good and the bad to be gathered, and the good will I preserve unto myself, and the bad will I cast away in, in its own place. And then cometh the season and the end, and my vineyard will I cause to be burned with fire. The Bible also uses preserve to describe God's protection of individuals, families, and of others. But here the context of the preservation during final tribulations before the millennium suggests a possible connection between the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses on this point. The Density of Book of Moses Allusions in Nephi 1's Writings Reynolds has noted that most of the connections to the Book of Moses come from Book of Mormon authors who were obviously familiar with the brass plates, including writers of the small plates of Nephi 1 and Alma 2, who spoke of and cited from the brass plates, as did Nephi 1. A high proportion of the examples of language considered in this study are found in the writings, in the writings of Nephi 1 in particular. In Table 1, five of the eleven examples involve Nephi 1's writings, including times when he quotes Lehi or Jacob. In Table 2, 11 of the 22 examples involve passages from 1st and 2nd Nephi. In the further cases listed in Table 3, parallels 34 to 86, including the weaker examples, 23 of the 53 examples involve 1st and 2nd Nephi. For example, 2nd Nephi 2 has multiple phrases and concepts showing apparent connections to the Book of Moses, including the agency of man, see verses 4 to 5, 16, 26 to 9, 29, compare uh, CF Moses 7:32. The multiple concepts in verse 5, see parallel 96, the rebellion of Satan, see 2 Nephi 2, 17-19, and so forth. One further, example of, one further example of many that could be given occurs in 2 Nephi 11, 4-5. After referring to the law of Moses in verse 4, Nephi 1 mentions that all things given of God from the beginning unto man, quote, are the typifying of him, and unquote i.e., they serve as types of Christ that bear record of him, possibly linking this verse to Moses 6.61, parallel 62. Interestingly, concepts from adjacent verses in the Book of Moses are found in the next verse in the Book of Mormon. In verse 5, uh, this is 2 Nephi 11, Nephi 1 mentions the, quote, plan of deliverance, unquote, a term synonymous with the plan of salvation in Moses 6.62, parallel 13, and also cites God's, quote, justice and power and mercy, unquote, a significant subset of the terms used in Moses 6.61, parallel 63. Though Nephi, is, Nephi 1 is preparing to introduce us to the words, to words from Isaiah, it's as if words related to the book of Moses echo deeply in his thoughts. Passages dense with connections to the book of Moses are not unique to, to uh, Nephi 1. For example, the short passage of Alma 12, 16 to 18 includes references to several concepts in the book of Moses, including the contrast between temporal and spiritual things, the torment of the wicked, being chained, and the captivity, captivity of Satan, being subjected according to Satan's will and redemption. Are the parallels meaningful? 
In offering nearly 100 parallels between the Book of Moses and the Book of Mormon, apart from the extensive direct use of material from the King James Bible, we suggest that the large number of parallels and the density of passages in the Book of Moses with links to the Book of Mormon merit further consideration. This is particularly, particularly so given the lack of a similar relationship between the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon. The high ratio of Book of Moses content from Book of Mormon writers most familiar with the brass plates and the multiple cases where a parallel, if real, would make the most sense as a one-way transmission from the Book of Moses to the Book of Mormon. At the same time, we recognize that in comparing two texts, there is always the possibility of finding parallels that are chance occurrences or that arise from other factors. Here we must be mindful of the, of the phenomenon that Samuel Sandmel called parallelomania. Sandmel explains that similarities between two texts may be due to common sources or influences for both and must be considered in detail and in terms of context, etc., to determine if the parallel really points to a direct relationship. Benjamin McGuire has also addressed the problem of parallelomania in looking for influences on the Book of Mormon, which is often done to undermine its authenticity, unlike the current exercise. While there are pitfalls in considering parallels, they can be of great value, whether in the form of direct quotations, clear allusions, or, as Richard Hayes refers to many of the Old Testament influences in the epistles of Paul, subtle echoes that may have many levels of volume. While the number of proposed parallels offered here is on the same order as the nearly 300 direct quotations in the New Testament from the Old Testament, the number of indirect allusions or echoes from uh, the Old Testament is obviously larger. Yet, having nearly 100 proposed parallels, direct or indirect, from such a proposed source as short as the passages of the Book of Moses that are not quotations from, from Genesis, while clearly an unexpectedly large number, is only meaningful if individual examples carry meaning. We recognize that the quality of these parallels varies, yet we suggest that a noteworthy number offer unexpected or improbable parallels with a reasonable context and add meaning to some of the Book of Mormon passages that use them, consistent with a legitimate source of influence as opposed to random coincidences. However, the problem of comparing our two texts is unlike the problem of com comparing Paul to the Old Testament or ancient Near East documents to the Bible, for here we have books that were both produced by Joseph Smith. One can always maintain that this is all we need to know to see that the parallels have no meaning apart from reflecting common authorship. But in comparing texts to determine if a relationship exists, scholars have repeatedly emphasized that details need to be considered. It is the details in this study that call for consideration of something more than just quoting the Book of Mormon and producing the Book of Moses. Did Joseph Smith produce the rich parallels, the rich complex of parallels we have identified, by working them into the Book of Mormon first and then providing backstories or apparent source material later in the Book of Moses to create some of the more intriguing examples? We feel the easy hypothesis that Joseph Smith was the fabricator of both texts cannot withstand scrutiny in light of the many details we discuss, even if he were a, skillful author, a skilled author, and that the parallels collectively have significant meaning. Conclusion In considering what we have learned from Reynolds' initial study and from further finds reported here, it is appropriate to reevaluate Reynolds' original proposal that the brass plates may have contained a text similar to what Joseph Smith dictated as part of his work to develop an inspired translation of the Bible. Joseph did not indicate that the translation was based on any kind of ancient text, but that it was simply given through revelation. 
For decades, some Latter-day Saints have assumed the Book of Moses reflects Joseph's prophetic imagination as he reworked some Bible stories from Genesis to add inspiring or inspired concepts to flesh out his growing views on theology, while some others point to modern sources to attempt to explain why some aspects of the book of to to attempt to explain some aspects of the book of Moses through naturalistic influences without any claims from Joseph about the existence of an ancient or text that he was restoring or translating it is natural that many latter-day saints may have a casual attitude about the book of Moses viewing it as good enough as quote good enough for modern scripture but not really an ancient text restored unquote but we may need to reconsider that attitude if the Book of Moses, created well after the Book of Mormon was completed, has significant connections to the Book of Mormon that go beyond merely citing the Book of Mormon and show signs of a one-way relationship in which the Book of Mormon appears to be drawing on the Book of Moses and not the other way around. In fact, the strongest case for so-called plagiarism in the Book of Mormon, apart from the obvious and expected borrowing from the Bible, maybe that of borrowing from the Book of Moses on the brass plates. Um, that's the conclusion of the paper. Noel, um, there's biographical information. Noel Reynolds, PhD, Harvard University, is an emeritus professor of political science at Brigham Young University, where he taught a broad range of courses in legal and political philosophy, American heritage, and the Book of Mormon. His research and publications are based in three fields and several others, including authorship studies, Mormon history, Christian history, and, theolo and theology, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Jeffrey Dean Lindsay recently returned to the United States after almost nine years in Shanghai, China. Jeff has been providing online materials defending the church for more than 20 years, primarily at jefflindsay.com. His Mormonity blog, uh, mormonity.blogspot.com, has been in operation since 2004. He is currently Vice President for the Interpreter Foundation and co-editor of Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship. Jeff has a Ph.D. in chemical engineering from BYU and is a U.S. patent agent. He's currently Senior Advisor for IP Capital Group, assisting clients in creating intellectual property and, and innovation. From 2011 to 2019, he was the head of intellectual property for Asia Pulp and Paper in Shanghai, China, one of the world's largest forest product companies. Uh, formerly, he was associate professor at the Institute of Paper Science and Technology, now the Renewable Bioproducts Institute at Georgia Tech, then went into R&D at Kimberly-Clark Corporation, eventually becoming corporate patent strategist and senior research fellow. Jeff served a mission in the German-speaking Switzerland-Zurich mission. He and his wife, Kendra, are the parents of four boys and have 11 grandchildren. This has been a recording of Strong Like Unto Moses, the Case for Ancient Roots in the Book of Moses, based on Book of Mormon usage of related content, apparently from the Brass Plates, by Jeff Lindsay and Noel B. Reynolds, originally published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 44, 2021, read by Jeff Lindsay. This audio recording is copyrighted under a common, uh, Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.